APG. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy episode 369. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, the view from our side of the cockpit door with your host, Captain Jeff, broadcasting live from Studio 423 at the Senesta Inn in Flagstaff, Arizona. Today's show is recorded on the 3rd of April, 2019. In today's episode, it may be a few weeks before Boeing updates the software on its grounded 737 MAX series. And a small airline is looking to use battery-powered aircraft. More news, your feedback, and in today's Plane Tales, Dean Noctexon. So get all settled in. Tray tables and seatbacks in the upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. I'm Radio Roger, and Flight 369 is ready for pushback. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Airline Pilot Guys show. It's an aviation podcast where we talk about aviation news, and we answer your aviation-related feedback. And joining me today from her lakeside studio in South Carolina, she's a doctor, skydiver, marathon runner, strength training junkie, IPA connoisseur, and commercial multi-engine instrument-rated pilot. Her name Dr. Steph. Hey, Captain Jeff. It is great to see you again. Feels like we did this not so long ago, I don't think, but I'm um, looking forward to a great show today. I am looking forward to it as well. And yes, as time goes on, everything just keeps getting faster and faster. <sighs> also joining us from his studio in the English countryside, professional photographer, former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, current captain for an international airline based in London. It's Captain Nick. Hi there, Jeff. Oh, golly, you look a bit weary. I guess we're going to find out in a minute. As for me, uh, I've been told by a Dr. Steph that I shouldn't be drinking with all these special drugs I'm taking. So, uh, cheers. This is true. <laughs> I did give him suitable medical advice. Whatever people choose to do with that advice is up to them. We are ignoring it. <laughs> and... Last but not least, from his studio near the historic Concord Covered Bridge in Smyrna, Georgia, he's a barbecue master, motorcycle rider, pontoon boat skipper, underwater underwear photographer, and a captain for a major U.S. legacy carrier. His name, Captain Dana. Well, hello, everybody. Let me just set the record straight. If you are saying the name an underwater underwear photographer, it would not be of the male species. So, just saying that. Uh, Keen observation. Great to be back this week. Looking forward to a great show. Well, we are too. I'm sure it won't be, but we're looking forward to it <laughs> at some point in the future. <laughs> Eventually. Yeah. All right. Let me uh, fade that out and uh, say hello to everyone watching us live. Remember, we do this show live. You should follow us on at APG Crew on Facebook and get the app for your phone and it'll give you a push notification when we're going to record live and you can join all the other wonderful people that we have right now with us in the live APG chat room. You'll have a blast, I'm sure. And I don't see what they're talking about right now. It's probably a good thing. 
Um, so uh, let's start off with our intro segment, and we'll try to knock out quickly what everybody has been up to since the last episode. And uh, let's go with uh, with females first, and that. Or is that an outdated? Oh, thank you. Thank you. I think I'm... not. Not not <laughs> your inner female. Not female. No, no like a real female bio- names. biologically female. Oh, female um, names doesn't qualify. Well, that got no. weird, but I think you're assuming yeah, or you're referring to me. I'm assuming. Yeah, but I'm hoping that's not offensive. <laughs> that I'm doing some kind of a chivalrous uh, kind of thing, females first kind of thing. I hope that is perfectly not. fine with me. I okay. would not be offended if you deferred to the elderly first. Oh, okay. Or to. Any one of the other... <laughs> well, the, the elderly's been time. first. <laughs> Nick the did not. Elder, the elderly's <laughs> been first. He's already done his bit. Oh, okay. Fair, fair enough. Now it's us youngsters. Ah, yes. <laughs> All right. So, um, yeah, before the show started today, Jeff goes, um, let's just uh, keep the what you've been up to kind of brief. I'm thinking this is not the week for me to be brief about what I've been up to over well, the you past... You can take, take as much time as you need. Steph. No, 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 no. I will be concise. Um, but since we last spoke on the show here, I had a little weekend getaway to England and I did that because I've been trying to fly with poor Captain Nick, who unfortunately could not fly at the moment. And I had some options. I could just have not taken the trip and it really wouldn't have been any skin off my back. But I was also trying to coordinate meeting up with Carlos and Matt and the PTUK guys because I'd been talking about doing that for a while. And, uh, this says crew log. I'll put it in a crew log too. So anyway, I was able to do that. I took a flight out on Friday night over to London from Washington, which was with Acme Red, my first time flying with them, which was very nice, I might add. Um, I arrived Saturday morning, rented a car, drove over to Duxford, uh, met up with Matt Smith and also Adam Spink and we, a couple of Matt's friends as well. And we... Did a little tour of the museum in the morning, and it was gorgeous outside. It was one of the nicest days I've seen in a while. Mid or low 60s, I'd say, Fahrenheit, um, sunny. It felt great. And then we went over to PTUK's little corner of the world in Bungie, England, and we recorded a show there and went out to dinner. And then I turned around the next morning and drove back to the airport and came home, <laughs> just in time to meet up with Colonel Jeff and Armando on Monday night. And I think we have some audio of that. We do. And this is the point at which I should play it. So let me just see if I can find it. I didn't know you were going to get to it, right? I'm sorry. I told you concise. I'll do some crew logs for the rest of the details. Yeah, please do. Uh, I will. Okay. Um, No, we want to hear about it here too, but we want a crew log. That's for sure. We haven't had one from you in a while. Okay, here we go. I found it. Well, hello there, all you PTUK and APG listeners. This is a combined APG-PTUK feedback. This is from the good-looking Captain Jeff, and I'm here at the Pilot Brewery in Charlotte, North Carolina. And this evening, I have two wonderful guests with me, the beautiful Dr. Steph and the wonderful Armando, who is back from England, and he doesn't have an English accent. So first, I'll put Dr. Steph on. I think I'm also back from England just recently. Um if you recall correctly, I was there this past weekend. I traded places with Armando, and it was uh, wonderful to be out there. It's very strange, I'll say, being on the um, interview end of of the interview here. Interviewee end, perhaps. Um, but yeah, actually, Captain uh, Jeff here, the good-looking Captain Jeff, suggested this as one of our meetup locations. And I'm ashamed to say 
but I did not know that this place existed. And I work down the road. They've been open since August. They do not have a sign out front. I drive by here every week. Um, but now that I know about it, um, I will be back because the beer was delicious. Yes, it was. Armando? Well, hello, everybody. I am truly starstruck now that I see the cap- the real good-looking Captain Jeff in person. I see how he earned that moniker. Um, no, we are we are here at the Pilot Brewery, and we've talked about life, love, liberty, and a little bit of airplane stuff, too, along the way. And it's just been a great evening. Not so much happiness, apparently. But Oh, is that... No, a, a lot of happiness. Well, that's because we all just look happy over a couple pints of... Uh, nice North Carolina craft brews and a bunch of snacks. Yeah, it was interesting because I actually, this was a no-notice trip for me to come down to Charlotte. I haven't had a layover here in a couple years, and I was actually wondering if Steph was going to be back from England or not, and she was able to be back in time for me to be down here the Monday after her trip, and we're having a good time. And Nick, I actually got approval this time, so it's not a problem. If you could hear it, that's the sound of the stamp and or seal of approval from APG HR for this authorized meetup. And I think Armando's going to give me his stamp as well for the PTUK folks, I hope. Oh, as the new guy on PTUK, I have no authority whatsoever other than just sending in segments. So since I'm not going to be on the show this uh, coming Friday, because I'll be doing my multi-engine recurrency, this will count as Armando's segment for PTUK. <laughs> So much for military. Oh, Captain Al will be happy. All right, for the APG and the PTUK folks, signing off. So since I'm uh, not the good-looking Captain Jeff, I've turned off my video, so you don't have to look at me. <laughs> wow, oh, Jeff. That's really no, that's okay. Aww. That's all right. I'm not, I'm not taking offense at all. I'm, I'm, that's okay. I'm that okay. gives us more time to look at Captain Nick, who's wearing, um, what's that, that thing you have on your head, sir? We're going to come to that. Oh, okay. Oh, Very good. Okay. Very good. Well, hey, real quick, before I um, am remiss in saying so, on my way out of the country of England on Sunday morning, uh, ne- Sir Neville Bounds, you've heard of him, and Graham Haley were kind enough to um, stop by the uh, departure area of Terminal 3 so we could sit down and have a chat before my flight and a cup of coffee. And I think they were really just there to make sure that I was leaving the country. So my thanks to them for stopping by. You, you guys didn't have to do that, and it was great to see you. So. Excellent. Well, it sounds like you had a good time with all those good-looking people. Okay, uh, Nick, why don't you go ahead and uh, tell us what is going on and uh, and tell us what's going on with that hat that you have on your head. Oh, the hat, yes. Uh, I, all right, I've got a hat. Um, I received an unexpected uh, piece of uh, delivery uh, from uh, um, our lovely friend Nico from Germany, Nico uh, Reger. Reger? I'm not quite sure how to pronounce that. I'm not sure either. Nico, uh, thank you very much indeed. He enclosed a handwritten uh, letter, which, and he's got nice handwriting. So, you know, I'm impressed. And he's written it in very nice English. And uh, all sorts of complimentary things and good wishes on one side. But he did say, um, maybe these things remind you that once you were also one of us, a Boeing pilot. Now, he's uh, alluding to the fact that uh, the F-18... Uh, is now uh, officially built by Boeing because uh, when I built flew it, it was Donald Douglas, but they, of course, been swallowed by the monster that is Boeing. Uh, so he provided me with a Boeing hat, a uh, lovely Boeing pen, 
a uh, Boeing 737-900 series uh, without the modified MCAS. So I'm worried if I build this model, it's not going to last very long. Um, and a Boeing, uh, oh, what's that? It's a, it's a memory stick. Uh, and I'm worried about putting that in my computer because I think it's probably going to crash my computer. Um, Is your computer an Airbus computer? Ouch. Well, yeah. Well, oh, I don't know. It's a Boeing stick, though, so it, I think it'll crash any computer. Uh, a big sticker. And, of course, uh, because we're both uh, radio amateurs, a, uh, a QSL card, very nice QSL card with a picture of his aircraft. You can't see it very much. Uh, but uh, it's what uh, radio amateurs swap when we have made uh, contact with each other. And his call sign DL7XT. Uh, is uh, right there on the front. So very nice indeed. So a few of the things he said was, uh, now that you're almost retired, you have no more obligation towards this other aeroplane manufacturer. You can happily join the Boeing Club. There's no membership fee. Why am I not surprised? Please feel free to show your appreciation for Boeing with your new cool blue hat on the APG show as often as you like while I'm wearing it. I'm leaving the tag on it because I gather that will mean it gets a bit more money when I sell it on eBay. Um, but on a serious note, for your last flight, I wish you one last time clear skies, unlimited visibility and tailwinds. And when all flying is done, enjoy your retirement as much as you possibly can and enjoy the beer prost. Uh, and he sent me four lovely German beers uh, with uh, unusual labels. Uh, the one I'm currently drinking is Nachtflug, uh, which I guess is night flying. I've got a Franz Joseph. Uh, Helen, and a uh, Hopfenstopper. So uh, w amongst those, I'm sure they'll be uh, they'll be lovely. Certainly the uh, Nachtflug, which is stout, uh, is going down very well indeed. So thank you very much indeed, Nico. Uh, and um, I appreciate that very much. However, going on to my health problems, my back has not. In fact, it's, it's actually got worse uh, from uh, when I last spoke so i think the uh and i'm off to see specialists uh hopefully before too long but the days are fast uh passing and uh the date at which i'm supposed to do my last trip is fast approaching and i'm uh sorry to say that the it's quite likely that the two will uh overlap and not give me enough time to get fit in time for this but fingers crossed you never know um, it might just happen but there's a good chance it won't sadly oh, shoot. Well, we're all hoping that you'll be able to do your last trip in Atlanta because we're planning on having a great party for you there. Indeed. Well, that would be lovely. Um, but there's always Oshkosh. So that is, true. Be fit, that is true. Certainly true. be fit by Oshkosh. I hope so. If not, if not, I'll be on a, a stretcher. Okay. I'll be there, <laughs> but on a stretcher. Yeah. Do you know when the funeral is going to be? I need to put that on the calendar. Oh my! Uh, yeah, well, I only already noticed you'd expired. Yes, you seem to have expired last night, Jeff. In, uh, yeah, like yeah, we we, all we were a little concerned this morning. Yeah. Well, I'll explain that in a minute. But <laughs> uh, well, that's it for me, Jeff. Okay, Dana, what's up with you, man? Hey, great to be back. Missed you all late last week. I was out flying the friendly skies seven straight days in a row. And uh, I'm going to leave that one kind of 
on the side because we want to keep it down to a minimum. So uh, nothing too major happened. Had to fill out a little paperwork. And uh, I'm just going to say that. <laughs> uh, you know, one of the things, one of the reasons actually, I'll, just, I'll say it real quick, is after flying seven days, uh, I flew, flew 18 legs in seven days. That's a lot of flying. And, you know, I did a, a, a self-evaluation of myself to see how I was feeling. I was rested quite well, slept quite well. So I didn't have uh, a rest issue. But the la very last leg going back into the uh, Atlanta uh, wasn't until I was turning on to final and didn't have uh, proper use of my faculties. Uh, I, that's when I noticed that I was actually very fatigued. Uh, so fortunately, I made it all the way through until the very last uh, few moments of the flight. Nothing major happened, uh, fortunately, but uh, I was just not reacting at the speed that I'm accustomed to. So fatigue did become an issue on the last leg. How would somebody uh, tell the difference between? I was almost like I was drunk. Oh, okay. Without drinking. I mean, fatigue is you, you, you just don't react quickly. If you, and, and, you know, my, my mind was telling me to do things. My body just wasn't reacting. Hmm. And, uh, you know, and I just, my, 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 you know, I, I don't, the best way I can describe is, and even today, I mean, this is one day after, and I still feel numb. Um, I'm just very, very worn out physically. Mm -hmm. Um, mentally, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sharp. Um, uh, I'm not very tired per se. I don't need to sleep. I haven't needed to sleep. I don't feel like I need to sleep. It was just that my body was just not, is just not reacting. It's just like if I went out and ran a marathon, Dr. Steph, mm -hmm. and you know, you, you're mentally sharp, but your body just says, you know, you're, you're done, you know, use up yeah, all your you energy. Know, and, and a lot of people don't recognize, I think, um, not so much physical fatigue, but mental fatigue. But it can make you react as though you're physically fatigued as well. So. Yes. And so that's, and, and I was fine. I did a self-assessment, uh, you know, my last round trip was up to uh, Miss Liz Land up there in Toronto. It was an uneventful uh, uh, arrival in Toronto. As a matter of fact, we had a beautiful view uh, of the downtown area where we turned the base leg. Uh, even the controller commented and asked us how beautiful uh, Toronto was looking today. And I, we both commented back to her, or well, we both commented and we said back, it is an absolutely stunning view today. Thank you very much. She said, I hope you enjoyed the tour. I, 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 she actually vectored us into into the area so that we could have a really nice uh, a view because they were landing uh, to the southwest. So a really nice uh, uh, approach into Toronto. Uh, but anyways, uh, you know, that's, that, that's a fatigue issue. That was, that was my actual last day. Uh, and, uh, you know, before I left from Toronto, I, I, you know, assessed myself and I said, yeah, I'm feeling pretty good. And it, it really didn't rear its ugly head until uh, just the last few moments of the flight. And that was when I was turning on to final into Atlanta and I actually had to click the autopilot off because it wasn't doing what I wanted to do. And it didn't do what I wanted to do because I was not doing it the way it should have been done. Um, and didn't realize it, it it quick enough. And that's why I had to click the uh, autopilot off and hand fly it in. Um, so that was part of the fatigue issue. Anyways, enough of that. Um, couple things, uh, Jeff, I think you mentioned, uh, last show that the award came out in the displacement. I did satisfactorily stay on the mad dog as a captain. Uh, that's a good thing and a bad thing. The good thing is I'm still going to be a captain of the Mad Dog. The bad thing in, in Atlanta, I do not have to commute. And that's very thankful for that. But I should have gone to the 717. 
Um, I would have had much better seniority. I went from 82 percentile to the 98th percentile on the airplane out of 100. Uh, I am now 11 from the bottom um, when this thing all shakes out. Um, so in the, in the uh, 717, I would have been about 82 to 83 percentile. So quality life-wise, that's going to hurt. But uh, there's going to be a few more bids between now and then, I think. And I think uh, uh, the next displacement that comes out, I certainly will be no longer on the Mad Dog. Uh, and I also tried to get vacation. We just mentioned uh, Oshkosh. I tried to swap my, vac my May vacation over to July, and of course, that didn't happen. So I am hoping that I'll be in Oshkosh, and I'm going to try to pull a few tricks out of my sleeves, uh, up my sleeve to uh, hopefully be there that week. And being that I was out flying for the last seven days, had an opportunity to meet up with some people. Uh, fantastic time up there in Portland, thanks to uh, our very close friend, Micah. And uh, Mark came up, Mark, 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 Mark. Mark came out and met us for lunch as well. Mark Adams, uh, he's an engineer up there in a power plant in the uh, Portland area and had a very lovely lunch with both gentlemen uh, and then went ahead and spent the rest of the afternoon and got to taste Micah's fantastic home cooking. He made uh, he made an unbelievable, and they even brought some home for Julie, uh, unbelievable um, minestrone soup that was just knock your socks off good. Uh, then he did uh, in a uh, uh, pot roast. Keep on saying it wrong. Uh, it, 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 is that right? God, I can't remember. What it's beef? Beef? Yeah, beef pot. Beef pot roast. Yeah, mm -hmm. uh, pot roast. And then um, that's something that's a, a Jewish delicacy is kashi vanishkas. So what's, what that is 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 a, a bulgur wheat, and and then it's mixed with some pasta. And it's a fantastic uh, dish. And then he had great desserts. We had a couple of adult beverages. And then I took, uh, I, I told uh, Micah, just go ahead and relax. Have a good time. Let's have have some fun. You you know, you, you want to have a drink, have a couple beers and whatever you want to do. And I'll take Uber back. We're not that far. So I did that so that he could uh, have some fun and, and relax a little bit. And then the last thing is uh, Sarasota. Had a quick meetup down there at Owens Fish Camp with Dean, our local friend in Sarasota, and my uh, FO, Chad, who's actually flown with Captain Jeff before he remembers you, and had very fond memories. Uh, so it was, a, it was a very good trip. Both my first officers were excellent and uh, very helpful, and my uh, first first officer I'd actually flown with before. So that's a summation of what happened over the last uh, week. All right. Um, speaking of the meetup that you had with Micah, I believe there is some um, audio to go with that. All right, let's go ahead and play it. Your main man Micah here for a meetup at Ocean Gardens with Captain Dana, who last night came in on the midnight plane from Georgia, came in on the midnight plane. <laughs> I always wanted to be a pip, but not pilot pip. <laughs> Captain awesome. Dana, it's so nice to finally meet you. <laughs> wow, I, I just, I cannot believe them sitting here in Gorham, Maine, actually in the Portland metropolitan area, if you want to call it a metropolitan area. It's kind of small to call it a metropolitan area. But anyways, um, I came in last night. We landed on runway 11. My FO that I'm flying with is from Auburn, Maine. So it's really 
exciting to see him uh, so excited because this is his first layover here in Maine uh, since he got hired at Acme. So uh, had that pleasure of witnessing the excitement there. And I was personally excited as we were coming in because I knew that I'd be meeting up with no none other than Uncle, Uncle Maine Man Micah. And, of course, my favorite way to say it, Mark. Mark Adams. Um, so great lunch meet up here, uh, and certainly great to meet both of these fine gentlemen. And after all this time, actually putting a face in person with the voice and the video projections that I've seen numerous times of Main Man Micah. So uh, when I arrived last night, there was a big old white styrofoam package and my crew members look at me like what in the world is god green earth is that and i started opening up right there at the front desk and i started peeling out all these items that were left there very nicely by main man micah uh for me and my first officer to indulge upon once we uh once we arrived in maine so thank you very much and oh by the way as a foodie i have to say that minestrone soup was amazing that you made so i really really enjoyed that last night so i'm gonna pass off the mic over to mark i love saying that mark mark it's wow mark all right so i'm gonna hand the microphone over to mark you've heard enough from me here you go well thanks captain dana it's uh really great to be here with you guys today and you said uh gentlemen you use that term loosely with me for sure <laughs> i'm no gentleman well maybe not so, yeah, we really had a great time here today. We had, uh, had some great food at the Ocean Gardens uh, restaurant here in Gorham. Not Gotham, Gorham, I think, as Jeff, I think, maybe misspoke about that. Um, but, yeah, we had a great meetup, had some great conversations, some great talk, and learned a lot of stuff about Acme. And, uh, and yeah, it was a great day, great afternoon, and uh, look forward to some more conversation with Dana this afternoon, too. So I'll hand it over to Micah. Well... You said that it's the first time you got a chance to see me, which isn't exactly true and uh, because we've seen each other on video before. And the first time you got a chance to talk to me in person, and that's true in person, but really the difference is now, we've been able to, now you're able to not just see me, you'll be able to smell me too, so now you know what's going on. I, I can also touch you, Micah. <laughs> I'm so glad you like the soup, and tonight for dinner we'll have that at my home, and we'll have some more of that soup, we'll have some pot roast, we'll have some kasha varnishkas, but this isn't a food show, it's an aviation show. So let's not talk about food anymore. Dana, it's just so wonderful to finally meet you after all these years. And great to have you up here in Portland, Maine. Hopefully we can make it more often. Well, Micah, your hospitality uh, is amazing. I just can't thank you enough how awesome it is to actually be here in person. I did mention that it was via electronic media before. <laughs> but anyways... Uh, no, uh, your, your hospitality is amazing. You picked an amazing restaurant, and I look forward to spending the rest of the afternoon with you touring around the area, which I haven't done in a very long time. Unfortunately, Mark has to go by the wayside to a meeting, but we're certainly going to spend a few more minutes here talking uh, before we head on, on our uh, separate ways. And, um, hey, listen, guys, it's been amazing. From Gorham, Maine, here with Mark Adams and Captain Dana. Signing off, back to you, Jeff. Well, thanks, Micah. Great editing job, by the way, on that. And Excellent editing job. <laughs> yeah. And uh, it was so nice to hear from all of you in Gotham, Maine. <laughs> all right. 
Um, and, and one thing I failed to mention, Jeff, is he uh, Micah took me around uh, around town. Despite his, he's having a little bit of back issues, well, um, but he took me around town to all the the lighthouses. Um, yeah, we saw that uh, yeah. on social media. The beautiful uh, photo of you guys. A uh, nice selfie of you guys uh, in front of a beautiful lighthouse. Either that or some kind of a picture that you were in front of. Yeah, that's uh, yeah. No, that's actually the first lighthouse commissioned by uh, George George Washington himself. I think that's Portland Portland Light or Portland. Mike is going to chime in here in a second. Portland. It's a, the entrance into Portland Harbor, so that's that's where it is. It's uh, one of the most photographed lighthouses in the entire world. But uh, and I also didn't realize this, but uh, a lot of the freedom ships were actually built up there in Portland as well. So um, they have a, a tribute to that as well. So it was it was it was a great day, and made uh, Portland headlight. There you go, man, man, Micah. Thank you, Portland headlight. Um, so, anyways, it was a great day, uh, and you know, as we both kind of figured, we hit it off and become instant friends, and we did, and it was a fantastic day. Ah, that's so nice, so nice. Mike is a great guy, isn't he? He is. All right. Somebody is calling me. Whoever you are from Mableton, Georgia, I do not want to talk to you. Okay. Hello. I'll just see. Hello? <laughs> Hello? Hello? Mabel, is that you? Mabel. Yes, this is Mabel. No, I'm just oh, kidding. Okay. <laughs> I, sorry, I couldn't come up with a, a, a voice fitting of a Mabel quick enough. Hey, breaking news. Um, the AirlinePilotGuy.com website is apparently down. <laughs> Again, yeah, I think maybe maybe the guy that's been trying to hack it, or I, sh I should say, guy or gal, um, succeeded apparently. Oh well, sorry everybody. I'll have to get with the uh, website guru to figure out what's going on with that. Anyway, I'm not really that concerned at this point. Um, so great audio. Uh, sounds like you guys had a great meetup at uh, the ocean, whatever it was, ocean something. Um, I'm sorry. Uh, I'm terrible with names. You know that I can't remember the name of it. Yeah, right well, that restaurant that you guys that had restaurant that yeah. was in Gotham, I mean Gorham. Yeah, in Gotham. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It was fantastic. It was a local mom and pup seafood restaurant. And it was just out of this world good. Excellent. Well, good to hear. All right. Uh, let's see. We were going to mention that there is a aviation podcaster meetup in Duxford in the UK. On May 12th, we want to make sure everybody is aware of that. And if you want information about that, contact Pilot Pip. And awesome museum, if you haven't been. I apparently was living under a rock and had never been, and it's awesome. Did you go? Oh, that's yep. right. You did on the last We trip. went this past weekend. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Can highly recommend. Oh, I remember the crew so log you did about that. That's awesome. Yeah, it's Thank you. coming your way soon. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, also, um, we're hoping that there's going to be a meetup on the 13th of May in Atlanta, but we're not sure yet. So please just keep listening to the show and looking at the APG calendar to see what's going on. And uh, we'll put any information uh, regarding that there. And as far as I'm concerned, uh, since the last episode, I have not flown. I don't think I have anyway. Um, I am on vacation, technically. I'm pretending like I'm on video right now, but I turned the video off. So I'm doing my air quotes, but I'm thinking, why are you doing that, Jeff? There's no reason to do it because nobody can see your video. Anyway, um, I'm doing the, I've turned off the video, not because I was upset about the fact that everybody thinks I'm ugly, but because 
well, maybe part of that, but also because the bandwidth here on my connection at the Senesta extended stay suites here in Flagstaff um, is not that great. So I thought that, that this would be best for the audio. So that's why I turned off the video. And uh, let's see, I am on a, you know, you might ask, why are you, Jeff, in Flagstaff, Arizona? And I would answer, that is a good question. I'm not sure why I'm here either. <laughs> um, I am making a trip to California to clear out a a storage unit that I have that had some some nostalgic items from the my mom and dad's house that was sold about a year ago. And I had, there were some things there that I couldn't take with me on the airplane, like my mother's china and some other nostalgic items. And so I decided to go ahead and uh, get a uh, storage unit uh, across the street from the uh, neighborhood. And every month I get this email that says that you have just made another successful payment for your storage unit. I'm thinking, how long am, am I going to pay for the storage unit? I need to do something about this. And because I had this time off, I thought this would be a good time for me to drive out to California. And you may wonder, why didn't I fly and then just ship everything back? And that is a good question. I do like driving. Uh, I like long road trip trips. And I'm doing kind of a, uh, kind of a uh, test road trip because uh, Nick and I are going to do a road trip from Atlanta to Dayton, Ohio to the uh, U.S. Air Force Museum before Oshkosh, and then we're going to head from there to Chicago, pick up the RV, and then drive to Oshkosh. So I thought, yeah, this is going to be a good, um, what do they call it, shakedown cruise. So so what exactly are you shaking down, Jeff? Your ability to drive without falling asleep? Or? <laughs> I have not had that issue, although my car, <laughs> my car thinks that I have low attention level. because Does it warn you? Yeah. Yeah. It is pissing me off. I don't know how to turn it off. I'm sure there's a way to turn it off. There has got to be. Yeah. So it's like, so look it, at the, be, you're I'll not be, looking at the road. You're not looking at the road. I am. I'm looking at the road. And it's, it's kind of been windy. So I think maybe because I'm kind of going like, you know, making these small corrections because it's really blowing the car around because there's a lot of uh, crosswind out here. It's thinking that maybe I'm like falling asleep or something, but it's really, it's really irritating me. Because it'll go low attention level, and what it, it starts vibrating the steering wheel and going, "Stop it! Stop it!" <laughs> it's like a stick shaker. Yeah, it's a stick car. shaker. Exactly. Yeah, what it yeah. Is. Stalling. Hey, you you yeah. make you make fun Quick of speed up. You make fun of me enough for not following social media. You know, you can just YouTube on how to turn it off. I haven't had a chance to do that because I'm driving a car, and I don't want to <laughs> take my attention away Here, from driving the car. Let me Google that for you. Yeah, let me Google well, it for you real quick. Somebody because it won't take It's a Honda second. Accord 2018. Please tell me gotcha. how to turn the uh, thing I'm off. On it, I'm on it, but, so, but it there, doesn't but, uh, happen every time you do one of those little videos you've been Okay, well, so maybe there are it? times <laughs> when I... <laughs> Every time he's going off the road into the dirt, it's vibrating. Okay, so maybe it's really trying to keep me alive. <laughs> Turn yeah. off. What, that's like the fourth thing on Google search. Turn off lane departure. No, no. Neville Brown says departure. Honda equipped with MCAS. No, Perfect. I like the lane departure. That's great. Oh, okay, lane departure is okay. You just want yeah. the the eyeball sensor thing. Is that what it is? I'm thinking. I was telling Liz. I was con I was uh, texting. I was texting her. But listen, when <laughs> I say texting, I'm I'm doing the hands free thing. So I'm I'm being cool. I'm not taking my phone and looking down and 
punching thing in my phone, I'm actually using the built-in system in the car, the Siri interface, the does Apple. It, uh, does it take into account your squint, Jeff? I don't know. Maybe it, maybe the glasses <laughs> have something to do with it. It thinks that I'm not looking at the road or something, and it, it's really pissing me off. It really is. Uh, but see, so I want to just turn off that part of it, but not all the others. You know, the the lane assist. Is it the, is it the attention monitor? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'll figure I'll figure this out for you. Don't you worry. Okay, I'll stop talking about it now. But I just want everyone to know we'll we'll take care of it. Okay, but I, I want everybody to know that I'm being very very safe. Now I also want everybody to know that I thought I could get away with driving 80 miles per hour in a 70 miles per hour zone. <laughs> How did that go for you? Not great, but mm-hmm. but not bad. Not as bad as it could have been. Mm-hmm. Um, entering Eastern Oklahoma, I. <laughs> I saw this uh, Oklahoma State Trooper, and I'm thinking, oh, well, I'm not going fast enough for them to, oh, no, they're following me now. Oh, no, the lights are on. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) Oh, crap. So I pulled off to the side, and he goes out, and he goes, kind of going fast there, huh? I go, well, no, I didn't didn't notice. (laughs) I didn't realize how how fast I was going. Yeah, I wanted to say I figured I could go that much more above the speed limit without you pulling me over, but I was wrong. But I did not say that. And he goes, so I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to get a ticket because every time I've been pulled over by a police officer, state trooper, whatever, I've always received a ticket. And in this really? case, he goes, yeah, every single time. And this is my very first time, yay, uh, that uh, he said, well, I'm going to give you a warning. And I went, okay. <laughs> I'm I'm perfectly happy with a warning. So he goes back, does his stuff. You know, he has my driver's license, brings it back, and gives me this yellow piece of paper that says I have a warning. I went, "Yoo-hoo! way oh, nice." Uh, didn't get a ticket. So did he write ten miles an hour both speed limit? No, he. I looked all over. It doesn't say exactly how fast I was going. I'm thinking. So I'd heard from somebody that said that you I can go. Go ahead. go ahead. No, sorry, good. No, Dana, I want to hear from you. No, I think he was thinking that the mustache would have been a little suspect. So that's why he really pulled you over. Oh, I yeah. And then maybe uh, when I was reaching for something and he pulled his gun on me and thought I was pulling a gun. On, no, I'm just kidding. He didn't you were pulling the microphone to interview him. Yeah. He didn't understand say, that. How do you feel about this officer? Um, so I uh, heard a saying. I'm not sure if this is true or not, but they said anything above the speed limit is good until it's like not over nine miles per hour. Correct. So like I've heard the, fr- the, the phrase over nine, you're mine. So until you actually talk to a state trooper and they will tell you anything over the posted speed limit. Well, of course they will. They can give you a ticket. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm, uh, yeah, I figured yeah. that that was the case, but I, they must give you some kind of a margin for like, um, I was going to say airspeed error, but, um, <laughs> odometer or speed, you know, speedometer error or whatever. But, Com- uh, compressibility. Yeah, <laughs> compressibility yeah. and, and <laughs> yeah. parallax error. <laughs> parallax yeah. error? Yeah. yeah Friction. It. Yeah. P- p- position error. Well, anyway, the bottom line is I did not get a ticket, so. <laughs> and uh, so I've been. <laughs> I just hope oh, this state wow. trooper isn't listening to this show. <laughs> yeah, I hope not, too, be because he's going to be like, I changed my hotel. mind. <laughs> It's in the mail. You still have a long way to drive, Jeff. You, you just can't change yourself. Stop you, it. You can't change your mind. Sorry. Um, so <laughs> what I've done, instead of going 10 miles over the speed limit, now I've backed it off to five 
miles per hour over the speed limit. So that's been working out okay. I haven't been pulled over well, yet. I must admit, Jeff, that little bit of software you sent me that allowed me to follow your route along the road, yeah. and, which is great. First time I flicked it on, it said you were doing 128. Well, I was not doing 128, I can assure you. Well, you were kilometers an hour. Oh, <laughs> well, but it also said he was expired. So, yes. and I went, "Whoa, Jeff's just really clogging it. This is great." And then I went, "Oh, it's kilometers." So I get oh. all these emails. I looked at my phone this morning, and everybody was concerned uh, in the APG crew that I had expired because yes, apparently the uh, the app that we're talking about is Glimpse, and you can send. And I think there are other apps that will do this. Uh, you can send the information. People can follow you. They can see where you are on the map, and they can apparently see how fast I'm going and uh, and bitch at you if you uh, are going faster than you, they think that you should. <laughs> and um, so anyway, uh, I, you can set it for a certain amount of time, and I think for you all, I set it for like eight or 12 hours or something like that. And obviously, it expired. Um, the, the glimpse expired while I was sleeping last night. But I did not expire. I'm still here. I'm alive. So thank you for yeah, all, all we could see yet. was your position, and then it said Jeff expired. <laughs> so, so. <laughs> yes. What is that saying? Uh, the the uh, the. I'm uh, not dead yet. I'm no, not dead yet. that's not it. Rumors of my demise. Yes, I think Mark Twain. Uh, yeah. It's a Mark Twain quote about they they thought he was dead or something. So anyway, oh shoot. I was going to connect my iPhone to the recording device so you could hear it um, of the um, the meetup that I had Get last night, but apparently I don't have the proper. Uh, what? Hang on. Let me let me get the uh, proper little Apple dongle or the Lightning port. So hang on. So you all just kind of entertain yourselves for a moment. Excellent. Why is Steph getting screen captures of me wearing a Boeing hat? <laughs> well, yes, I am. I ask people too, and I've actually received quite a few of them. <laughs> so thank you to those of you who have sent them to me already. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But when this I retire, I'm going to become ambidextrous. Is that the right word? No. No. Ambi no. Ambivalent. 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 You're already yes. ambivalent. Yeah. Ambidextrous in the sense that you like both Boeing and Airbus. Yes, exactly. And, yeah. yes. But I think I did notice, and a lot of people in the chat room did mention this, Nick, that the they noticed that the tag was still on the hat as if you were going to return it. Sell it on well, eBay is what he said. I'm I, think. Gonna, I, I said I'm going to sell it on eBay. Oh, I'm sorry. I wasn't paying attention. Except I'm joking because I've already ripped it off. Have you noticed? It's now missing because I said, right, well, I quite like this hat. Okay. So, well, I, yes, okay, go Steph, go ahead. No, no, this has nothing to do with anything. Go ahead. Okay. I was just going to keep talking. Well, I'm sure it's more interesting than what it's I'm going to say. Uh, so, I started on Monday, left the house at about 10 o'clock and decided I didn't want to kill myself. So, I went to, I made it to Little Rock, which was about a 10 hour drive, something like that. And, uh, that was my first night. Next day, I left early, earlier than I really wanted to. But I did that because I wanted to make it to Albuquerque because I knew that we have APGers in the Albuquerque area and uh, one in particular. I know there are more than just one, uh, but I couldn't. I did a search in the emails and on Slack, and I even po posted a message that I was going to be in Albuquerque yesterday, uh, but uh, nobody saw it. So. If you're in Albuquerque um, and you are now listening to this, well, 
your loss. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I met up with James Graves Brown, and I uh, went to what? This is the. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. I was looking. I was distracted. Um, sorry. That's okay. You know, squirrel. Squirrel. <laughs> what is this that I'm seeing on my phone and every other device that I have that's connected to the internet? Um, okay. Uh, so I knew that uh, James Graves Brown was in the. What was that? Is that another room that I'm hearing? Squirrel. <laughs> wasn't me. Okay. Definitely wasn't just, Captain Nick. I'm just definitely not Captain Nick opening a beer with his flip flop. <laughs> okay, because I don't I don't see any video, so I don't know what's going on. I just hear things. Uh, anyway. Uh, I knew that uh, James was in the Albuquerque area because he has sent in some feedback recently. He was the guy that talked about the uh, flight that he had leaving Orlando, and they did a uh, a rejected takeoff. And he was wondering, you know, why they rejected the takeoff, and then ended up eventually canceling the flight. And I tried to find some audio for that, never could find it. And uh, anyway, so I in in the back of my mind, which is very small. Um, I knew that there was somebody in the Albuquerque area, so I thought, hey, maybe there's a chance for me to get a little meetup while I'm on my road trip. So I contacted James, and he said, yeah, that's great. I'll just meet you. I'll pick you up from the hotel. And uh, he took me to Guitar Center to get me a new XLR cable because the one that I had with me in my bag had has a little short in it. And uh, so I, I got a new cable. And then we went to uh, a little short, what a little short, uh, I don't know. Can't think of anything <laughs> clever to say. Um, yeah, I'm talking, about, I'm talking about the cable, not my own personal equipment. Thank you. Oh, okay. Um, and we went to La Cumbre, uh, which is a La Cumbre, uh, which is a uh, Steffi. Steffi, what does that mean? La, I don't know. La Cumbre. How do you spell it? C-U-M-B-R-E. I don't know. Okay. Well, we didn't know either. We could find out. So we asked the bartender, and they said, that means the peak, and uh, because Albuquerque has some mountains right there, very nearby, and uh, they had an award-winning- the top. The top. Okay. Peak. Um, The peak. Did not know that word. Uh, I I never heard of it either, but I don't know anything about Spanish, except for like counting to 10. And some Mexican food items. Um, so we went there and there was a food truck outside. It was a typical, uh, you know, brewery kind of setup that they don't serve food, but there's a food truck outside and it was a really good food. And uh, we recorded a little bit of feedback on my phone. And so I hope that this will come through here. I'm going to hit the play button. I'm in Albuquerque, New Mexico, on uh, day two of my, I don't know, probably four-day uh, road trip until uh, I get out to California, and then I'm going to reverse the thing and hopefully get home by Sunday, because I have a trip on Monday. <laughs> so, uh, But I'm here, uh, well, I let James Graves Brown know that I was going to be coming to Albuquerque, and in the back of my mind, I'm thinking to myself, if I make it to Albuquerque, there's somebody there that said, Jeff, if you're ever in Albuquerque, I'll buy you an IPA. Now, t- to be truthful, I bought my own IPA, but he bought my nice green chili, Philly 
cheesesteak sandwich, which was just awesome. So I'm here with James Graves Brown and James friend Randy, and uh, we're here at the La Cumbre Brewing Company, which means peak and in Albuquerque. And we are drinking this wonderful beer. I had the uh, Elevated IPA, which is an award-winning IPA, and it's really, really good. And uh, so I'm going to let James say something to you. It's going to be probably mo the most profound thing you've ever heard anybody say on the show. <laughs> hey there, Captains Nick, Dana, uh, Dr. Steph, uh, APG community. Uh, just here enjoying a, a, a beer and some food with, and some good conversation with Captain Jeff and Randy. Um, it's a pleasure to, pleasure to finally meet you in person, and, and I'm, I'm glad to uh, have had this time with you. Was I not lying when I said that it was the most profound thing? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. We're having a great time here, and it was a very a wonderful pleasure to meet you. James. Uh, he took me to a local guitar center because the XLR microphone cable that I had that I brought with me is faulty, so, you know, saved my life, man. And uh, here's Randy. You want to say something, Randy? Uh, how's it going? Um, I haven't actually heard the podcast yet, but I've heard a lot of good things about it. Uh, Jeff's a really good guy, and I'm definitely going to be a listener from here on out. Randy, you said you haven't listened to the show. You're dead to me. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no. So, hey, I, I think you'll love this. Uh, well, I hope you'll love the, the show. We try to be entertaining. And uh, this, the best part of this whole thing is the, the community that surrounds it. It's just amazing. And as I've said many, many times, the best part of doing the show is doing these meetups and it's so nice to meet you randy and to meet you james Likewise. thanks for sending in all the feedback and i hope to hear more from you in the future Definitely. Definitely. all right bye back to you jeff in the studio Ooh, thanks for the throw jeff i'm back here in the studio and anyway as i said it was a lot of fun thank you James for picking me up and taking me to Guitar Center and La Cumbre. And uh, yeah, as I said, we had a great time. All right, I'm trying to make this thing extend. That's what she said. Uh, to the iPad. Oh, what's that? Do you hear that? Somebody with a weed whacker outside. I'm on no, the third. I don't, I don't hear it. I'm on the second floor of this darn. It's okay, you Hotel. couldn't hear whatever excavation well, project why? was happening that, just around that, the corner from my house earlier, so. That must be anymore. long grass, Jeff. <laughs> and it must if be very, very it tall from the grass. second floor. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I don't understand this, but I hear it. Anyway, um, so yeah, we had a, we'd a, had a great time, and uh, I'm going to be leaving tomorrow morning from Flagstaff. I'm, I'm, oh, I'm in Flagstaff. You knew that. Uh, heading to California, Southern California tomorrow. Uh, to take care of all the clearing out the storage unit. And um, as I was leaving Atlanta, about uh, not quite to Birmingham, I'm thinking to myself, oh, yeah, there's a key to the lock on the storage unit. I'm sure you have it with you, right, Jeff? 
And then I started looking around to see if I had the key to the storage unit lock, and I didn't. And so I proceeded to make a call to the storage unit people. I said, hey, so what if I forgot my key at home? I don't want to turn around because it's going, I probably would have never, if I'd gone back to Atlanta to my house, I would have said, okay, that's enough. I'm not going to do this again. And they said, no, no problem. We can, we can cut the, uh, use a bolt cutter to, you know, get the lock off. So we're good. Anyway, uh, I'm going to take and, care of and that. And then they sell. Then, then you have to bid for the contents, like they do on the storage wars. Well, she's it. What yes. I don't understand. Yeah. She said, "Yeah, we can cut the lock, but you'll have to buy a new one." Well, I think they assume <laughs> that you're going to keep. So that's what I'm thinking. I'm th she didn't hear the first part where I said I was going to clear everything out and you know, like not pay for it anymore. But apparently, she didn't get that part. But anyway, um, but even if I have to pay for a new lock, it's much better than having to turn back around. <laughs> Uh, and go back home. So for sure. Um, mm -hmm. Anyway, oh, maybe uh, they expect you to replace it. Was it your? But no, it's my lock. lock. Oh well, yeah. So I don't know what they're talking about. Anyway, I'm going to find out tomorrow. I think. Going to head back or head over there tomorrow. Take care of that, and then probably leave on Friday and come back and head back home with all the stuff that I cleared out from the storage unit. So there you go. Wasn't that fascinating? Very much so. Thrilling. <laughs> Had me on the edge of my seat. Uh, I knew it. Up. I knew it. Yes. Okay. That's enough of me. And uh, I think now it's time for us to talk about the coffee fund. What do you think? I think I so. Please. Okay. <laughs> so rude. Johnny, how much more coffee? No thanks. I love coffee. I love tea. Community, coffee and tea, and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. All right, the Jeff Smith sings the Java Jive, and we're talking about the Coffee Fund cadre, those great folks that uh, support our show financially. And there are a couple of different ways to do it, and one is the Coffee Fund classic method and since our last episode we have a few folks that are actually a couple of folks that uh, use the coffee fund classic method alistair care and randolph ackerman are contributors to that and we have a new patron via patreon.com that's the service that you can sign up and support the show and pledge a certain amount per episode and Paul is an executive producer because he pledged $5 per episode so yay Paul listen to that applause in the background isn't that awesome I know you'll hear it in post okay uh, so if you want to uh, support the show financially please head over to airlinepilotguy.com slash coffee you'll be glad you did Stand by for news.
Let's start with this, an update on the 737 MAX thing. Uh, the FAA issued a statement on the 1st of April. The FAA expects to receive Boeing's final package of its software enhancement over the coming weeks for FAA approval. Time is needed for additional work by Boeing as the result of an ongoing review of the 737 MAX flight control system to ensure that Boeing has identified and appropriately addressed all pertinent issues. Upon receipt, the FAA will subject Boeing's completed submission to a rigorous safety review. The FAA will not approve the software for installation until the agency is satisfied with the submission. So that is the official FAA statement as of two days ago. And we're expecting that software enhancement anytime now. And uh, by the way, just an aside, the uh, doing the road trip that I'm doing has allowed me to listen to a bunch of podcasts that I subscribe to, but I have not listened to because I just don't normally have time to. But when you're driving a car for 10 to 12 hours a day, you have plenty of time to listen to podcasts. And one of them uh, that talked about this particular issue and also referenced an article that I also read that I thought was very well done uh, from somebody from the Seattle Times, uh, Brandon, in his um, podcasting on a plane, um, read basically this, uh, this article from the, this uh, columnist uh, at the Seattle Times. And um, it's a very balanced and uh, very well done article. So I'll uh, put a link to Brandon. If you haven't listened to Brandon's podcast, you really do need to because, I mean, he is it's just better and better. Every time I listen to it, I'm thinking, wow, he is really kicking it. Um, in fact, pretty soon, I think, um, I'm just going to quit podcasting because people like Brandon and, um, uh, uh, the, uh, the boys over there at the posing bases and, uh, all the other great podcasts that are already out there are just, uh, so much better than what we do here. <laughs> so, well, I've already sent them my CD. I, know, so I, well, <laughs> I, I have noticed by the way, that several of my <laughs> co-hosts are making, um, appearances on these other aviation podcasts so that is something that i'm thinking is uh maybe a is telling yeah just just the odd overture uh-huh yeah, yeah. i got uh, it just cameo appearances really <laughs> uh, so, but yeah, hey yeah, just, I sh we should point you in the direction the of plane talking uk because um i was on their most recent episode i don't know which number it was i don't remember but nah you'll find that's it. don't waste your time <laughs> on that one <laughs> no it's uh, yeah, but, but they have very nice cabling <laughs> Do they? Yes, yes. Do they have like yes. All, yes. everything's channeled all nice and neatly? Everything's very mm -hmm. nice and neat. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, we. Steph, you did not mention that, did you? That you were on the. Well, I thought you did. I did. Yeah. Okay. I did. Yeah. She did. Yeah. So uh, you you don't want to miss that. I mean, like you can't. I mean, you really can't get enough of Steph. Um, and so you need to watch the PTUK where she was the special guest. She had the uh, the two uh, hosts of the show. Um, just mesmerized. They were just <laughs> awestruck. That was a bit of a surprise to me, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> Not to us. Oh, okay. Yeah, we're always awestruck when you're with oh, us stuff. You guys are too kind. <laughs> anyway, uh, so um, since this is one of the last episodes of the Airline Pilot Guy show, um, I just thought I'd mention those great podcasts so you'll have something to listen to. Yeah. <laughs> what? Uh, uh, no, I just chuckled at what I'm else was going to say. Beer. 
Okay. I can, we can't tell what you're doing, silence. Jeff, because actually I'm crying, but I had to I had to put myself on mute. <laughs> <laughs> I had to collect myself and okay, I'm okay now. Get a get a grip, <laughs> Jeff. Get a grip. Yeah, well, I can't do that either. Hmm. Although I'm not on video, so I could. All right. <laughs> now now. Wow. <laughs> Item number two in the news folder. Oh. No. I wanted to mention another podcast I was catching up with opposing bases uh, really really good discussion about the atlanta tricon and how they handle uh, traffic coming into atlanta and how they assign runways and the different uh, breakdown of all the different positions and how they uh, bring airplanes in and uh, manage them and do uh, mixed approaches, and then they go to the PRMs, and uh, it's just fascinating. And I'm learning something. I'm somebody who has participated as a pilot in this stuff for many years now, and uh, it's just kind of amazing to hear a a report. A, a, uh, what do you call those people? Uh, controller from the. <laughs> Atlanta Tracon in Peachtree City. They're the voices in your head. Yes. I, I love it. I love it when they uh, turn the boat around. That's uh, very good. That description was excellent. Yeah. It's just uh, really good behind the scenes information that I think really enhances safety, especially for us who are, you know, the uh, participants in the whole play. And uh, if, if you're not aware of it, Atlanta, Atlanta International Airport is the busiest airport in the world. And these people, when they when they have everything going at full approach rate, um, the arrival rate is 134 uh, per hour. And so think about that. That's a lot of airplanes coming into an airport every hour. And then I think when they're doing the PRMs, it gets reduced to like 98. But it's 98, uh, an arrival rate of 98 is still amazing in low uh, weather, low visibility conditions. So anyway, very, very interesting stuff. Uh, RH, Series of two, I think, right? They did. Uh, yes. Was they, it two, they, across I, two podcasts? I think yeah. I'm like halfway. Well, I just started the uh, second part of that mm -hmm. um, series. I've listened to the first part so far. but Really good stuff. I mean, mm -hmm. that's just, you know, for uh, for us pilots to, to hear all the stuff that's going on really is um, pretty interesting. At least I think so. So check out uh, Opposing Bases podcast. RH and AG are doing a great job. And uh, again, Brandon and Gonzalez and his podcasting on a plane. Just really super, super podcast out there. And then, of course, you know, all the other aviation related podcasts, Airplane Geeks and Flying in Life and PTUK, Plane Safety, and so many more. I'm sure I'm forgetting some, but good stuff out there. All right. Item B. Harbor Air. Who wants to talk about this? I guess I do. Top seaplane airline, Harbor Air, looking at switching to battery-powered aircraft. I think they're looking at either C or D cells. I'm not sure. A lot of those things are going to be required to operate these airplanes. I'm just kidding. That's a joke. Um, <laughs> see, <laughs> see, I was frantically <laughs> scrolling through the, the – th I was like, I don't recall – Reading that part of seaplane oh. operator Harbor Air, which regularly shuttles BC's British Columbia's political class to and from Victoria, is looking to become the first all-electric fleet of commercial planes in Canada. 
but the company head says passengers have nothing to fear, <laughs> nothing to see here. Greg McDougall, founder of the company that bills itself as North America's largest seaplane airline, said Monday that I'll be the first guy to fly one. I'll be the test pilot of it. That's cool. I guess he is a pilot. He was referring to an electric-powered prototype the company will test within months as a prelude to electrifying the fleet within about two years. By November, the company is planning to be testing a de Havilland Canada DHC-2 Beaver, a six-passenger aircraft equipped with an all-electric motor developed by Magnix, Magna-X, a company based in Redmond, Washington. Magnix has been crafting the technology on the ground, but has yet to operate it on an aircraft. Uh, here's a quote from McDougall. I wouldn't put myself in there if I thought there was a problem. I certainly wouldn't put my loved ones in there if I thought that there was a problem or my passengers. We have to prove a standard of safety that's equal to or better than what we currently have. And so the article goes on to talk about the technology and other information regarding this. Um, what, do you, what do you think? Do you think this is actually going to happen? I guess these are not long range flights in general. So no, they're, they're about 30 minutes, he says, uh, normal flight, which is quite within the capacity uh, of these aircraft. I mean, the only thing that worries me slightly is if I was going to choose to have a fleet of electrically powered aircraft that I, I wouldn't necessarily start with um, seaplanes. The ones like, that land on water? Yes. yes like <laughs> water, water and electricity. You know, you think, well, it's not the kind of perfect environment to start everything splashing around, everything getting wet. So, uh, but, you know, he seems confident. I, uh, so there you go. Uh, we'll see. Yeah. Um, yeah, if they can make it work, that's uh, sounds like they're yeah, going I green. mean, it could be yeah. nice and quiet because it's, uh, you know, they're working right in the middle of a city there. It could be, could be really good. Yeah. I still think my technology, the rubber band um, technology, would be mm -hmm. something that would, uh, you know. Do you think you could get a 30-minute flight out of the, the Nah, band? we're only at about three minutes at this point, okay. Steph. Um, <laughs> we're still working on yeah. uh, extending it to a, a longer flight period, but mm -hmm. apparently uh, that's something that they want. <laughs> <laughs> Um, the, the customers have paid for yeah. a longer experience. <laughs> Those darn customers. They're always right. Uh, yeah. So that'll be interesting to see. Um, it might be just the first step in, you know, like, you know, 20 years from now, people are going to go, what really? They had engines on airplanes that were not electrically powered. That's weird. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So check out the article from uh, the Globe and Mail uh, to read more about this. All right. Um, item C. I'll take that one, Jeff. Okay, please do. All right. So this is UPS to make drone deliveries at Wake Med Hospital in Raleigh. So just up the road from me, um, they'll be making, this is the company United Parcel, Postal Parcel Service. Yes. I should probably know, as I think I have family yes, relatives who work for them, <laughs> um, which I'm not affiliated with them at all. But um, they'll be making their first deliveries with drones in the, in the United States um, in the Raleigh area. Let's see here. So they're going to use Matternet drones to deliver lab and blood samples between 
uh, wake meds, hospitals, clinics, and doctor's offices in the Raleigh and Wake County area. A, this is a historic development in patient care. And this article is from newsobserver.com. It says, a white drone with four rotors appeared over the roof of WakeMed's main hospital on Tuesday morning and landed outside the front doors carrying a small brown box with a UPS logo on the side. The flight marked the first regular commercial delivery by drone in the United States that was approved by the Federal uh, Aviation Administration. UPS will use drones to deliver blood and other lab samples from WakeMed hospitals, clinics, and doctor's offices to its main lab in Raleigh. Known for its boxy brown trucks, UPS will be using drones made by a California company, Matternet, whose battery-powered M2 quadcopters can carry loads of up to 4.4 pounds. Not a ton. <laughs> uh, for now, the del deliveries will be limited to short hops between WakeMed's main hospital on Newburn Avenue and a medical office park across from Sunnybrook Road. In a demonstration flight last August, a Matternet drone carried several vials of water 1,377 feet from a parking lot in the office park to the roof of WakeMed. Uh, let's see. Tuesday's flight was longer, about a third of a mile, and took about three minutes. Uh, they expect to make about seven of those flights a day, delivering samples to the central pathology lab in the hospital. Eventually, uh, they hope to master the logistics and win government approval to make drone flights as long as 12 and a half miles, the full range of the drone. The NC Department of Transportation, North Carolina Department of Transportation, has been working with Matternet and WakeMed on developing the medical delivery system under a test program authorized by the FAA to determine how drones or unmanned aircraft systems might be regulated in the future. FAA rules still bar drone flights beyond the site of the operator, though the issue or though the agency has issued waivers as part of the test program. UPS and Matternet say they expect to be able to receive an FAA waiver that would allow them to make daily deliveries from WakeMed facilities around Wake County to the central lab um, on Newburn Avenue. And it goes on quite a bit longer here, but I think that's kind of the gist of uh, what's going on. So it says by the end of, um, they're hoping that by the end of 2020, um, they'll be flying for several hospitals around the country and that in time drone medical deliveries will be considered routine. All right. Hey, I was in the Guitar Center and we were at the front paying for my XLR cable and I heard this guy go on the loudspeaker or the pa system oh we have a code brown code brown and i'm thinking are they saying something about me that sounds dodgy i know <laughs> yeah. yeah it's like that's rude and then they said no it's a ups delivery I went, oh okay what can brown do for you that's right i believe that was a slogan i was a bit disappointed that the drones weren't boxy and brown i know i was kind of hoping they would have um yeah they're too white yeah, yeah. it wild. does have a if you see the uh if you look at the link in the show notes which i'm sure it'll be there the little <laughs> parcel box on it. <laughs> does say does kind of resemble a ups yeah. box yeah. With a little logo and, and the one thing i didn't really quite understand is there are no cameras on board uh so either for the pilot or to record what's on the ground they rely entirely on gps which i was going yeah, uh, I wouldn't do that myself. I'd quite like to see where this, you know, important amount of blood or uh, organ or tissue or whatever, where it's going. And if it, they have a slight problem, where it's landed. Uh, but Nothing can possibly not. go wrong with that. No, no. <laughs> Foolproof. <laughs> Nothing can go wrong. Go wrong. Nothing. Go wrong. Nothing. <laughs> okay. Hey, thanks, Steph. Anything else to add? 
I don't think so. Okay. Uh, let's skip to E. Incident. Red Wings, A321, near hmm, Ekaterinburg. <laughs> Is that the way you pronounce that? That's how I would pronounce it. Okay. Ekaterinburg. Uh, Ekaterinburg. Uh, March 26, 2019. Uh, Red Wings, Airbus A321-200 registration, Victor Papa, Bravo, Victor, Oscar. Performing flight WZ4071 from Ekaterinburg, Ekaterinburg Russia, to... Antala, Turkey, was climbing out of the E-City when a burning odor occurred in the passenger cabin. Flight attendants found a seat cover smoldering on fire and discharged fire extinguishers successfully. Let me try that again. And discharged fire extinguishers successfully putting the fire out. The crew decided to continue the flight to Antala or Antala, Antalya. How do you pronounce that? Some, some 1,700 miles away. And Antalya, I guess. Ooh. So it's quite a long way. That is. So on March 28th, the airline reported they found a lighter, a cigarette lighter or whatever, between the seats. It appears a passenger used a lighter to set the seat cover alight. The airline is going to propose a ban of carrying lighters onto aircraft to... Ah, shoot. <laughs> that Roosevelt, yeah, yeah, uh, Russians civil, Russia's civil aviation authority. Um, wow, so that almost sounds to me like a terrorist incident. Well, somebody messing about. You know, Why would you uh, set your darn seat on fire? God knows, God pyromaniacs. Knows. Well, I guess really there bored. is that. But I mean, if they're going to ban carrying them on uh, in carry on. Uh, aren't people just going to put them in their check luggage? The whole point is to avoid having them in your check luggage. Yeah. Because you can put them out when they're in the cabin. You can't do much when they're in the cargo hold. So I sense, Nick, that you're thinking that, because uh, you made the point, the, they continued for quite a long uh, journey after the fact that they got the fire extinguished. You're You're thinking that maybe that wasn't a good idea to do, or... What? Well, I, I don't know. It depends on really uh, how quickly they get rid of the odor of the uh, fire extinguishers and how serious the fire was. If, yeah. Um, because, uh, I mean, we've had uh, uh, in our outfit a fire and a hat rack, uh, and uh, I think they discharged four or five extinguishers, and they're pretty uh, they're irritants. Uh, the halon uh, is really quite nasty uh, and choking. Um, but they got the fire out and they discovered the source and they said, right, well, it's all safe now. The irritant cleared and they decided to continue. So, no, I, I think if, if you've got everything under control, that's fine. But if you've got someone on board who has deliberately set light to the seat, I'd uh -huh. be tempted to put the damn thing on the ground and find out who the hell it was. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. So I, I guess at this point they didn't know who the passenger was. And the fact that it was a lighter, I'm, I'm not sure. We don't have all the information. No, here, we but don't. I, I but can I'm, see. I'm assuming that they had passengers' tickets and seat numbers. Yeah, unless it's true. one of those, you know, uh, go and grab any seat. But uh, I think they'd probably have enough witnesses to know, have, have a vague idea. Okay, but, uh, I, I see that yeah. now. Yeah. So it's not the fact that there was a passenger seat on fire and they isolated it to that particular seat and they were 
were convinced that this was not going to be a problem for the rest of the flight. That's not really the issue. It's the fact that there's some idiot here that is trying to light things on fire. On <laughs> exactly. Yeah, gotcha. that would be my concern. Yes. Okay. Yeah, that, that makes sense. I agree. All right. Well, thank you. Um, uh, Nick, I think you said you wanted to uh, take on this next news item, F. Yeah, well, this is a fascinating one um, because uh, this is a Qantas 744 and it's near Hong Kong. So they're coming up from the south and uh, they're in a holding pattern and uh, they get a stick shaker activation. And the uh, the title is actually quite amusing because it says stick shaker activation in holding pattern injures 15 passengers. So it makes it sound like the stick shaker went mad in the cabin and hit all these passengers, but that's not exactly the way it works. What? So it was oh, a quant- that's, that's the way it was, I think. <laughs> I know, that's really. <laughs> totally how I read it. it <laughs> runaway, runaway stick shaker going down the aisle of the cabin. Smacking everyone around the Somebody head. get the stick shaker! <laughs> <laughs> Very good, very good. Okay, so it was a Qantas Boeing uh, 747-400. And he, he, for those who are interested, Victor Hotel, Oscar Juliet uniform. And it was flight QF-29, Melbourne to Hong Kong. 347 passengers, 17 crew. They're well looked after, aren't they? And they were asked to enter the hold um, on a uh, waypoint uh going into uh, Hong Kong. And it's quite uh, common on southerly arrivals from my memory going in Hong Kong that you might do a few turns. And they were told to enter the hold at flight level 220. And the position was about 60 miles southeast of Hong Kong. And uh, the stick shaker activated, prompting the crew to disconnect the autopilot, recover the aircraft manually. Now, the problem with having, well, explain first of all, the stick shaker is a, a stall warning. It's an indication that the aircraft is about to stall, and we really don't want that to happen. Uh, and the other thing is, it's when you're in a hold, You've got a lot of uh, aircraft in the same piece of sky, usually, got a number of you, and you're only separated by a thousand feet. There's not a lot of room to complete a stall recovery. So, these are the t- two main features. Uh, the uh, Australia's uh, TSB reported 15 passengers had minor injuries, and the occurrence was rated as serious and being investigated. And the data of uh, the ADSB transponder suggested the aircraft was descending to enter the hold at about 340 knots of over the ground. Well, that's a pretty irrelevant. So let's have a look at the final report, because this is uh, much more uh, accurate. And um, and they say that uh, the guy came uh, into the hold and uh, he had first selected expecting uh, to be a hold at the normal height, which is, you know, lower, about flight level 150. So he set the hold in Waypoint Betty, which was correct, and then uh, set the his flight management computer to hold at a speed of 223 knots, which is uh, uh, what they would normally expect for a um, sort of lowish level, flight level 150-150 hold. Now, when they were cleared to enter at flight level 220, they didn't change that speed. Now, a stalling speed increases with altitude because uh, the air gets thinner, uh, less air molecules, uh, and the aircraft stalls uh, easier. Uh, and what's more, um, the speed they sent at the height they were was well below the 
aircraft's maneuvering speed. So when the autopilot rolled the aircraft to do the first turn of the hold, it had 30 degrees of bank on. That's when the aircraft's stick shaker activated, telling the crew that there was, uh, they were approaching the stall. They were dangerously low speed. Now, what happened was, as the onset of buffeting, the flight data showed that the autopilot was disconnected, most likely by the captain. He then pushed forward on the control column, which is exactly the correct thing to do, although uh, having done so, you should then really roll the wings level. But he uh, he reduced the aircraft's pitch and reduced the aircraft's bank angle, so they're both good. Um, but... Uh, Due to a desire to remain within the protected airspace of the holding pattern, he didn't roll the wings level as is recommended. Now, for me, if you're about to stall, that's quite a serious situation. Uh, the protected area of the hold isn't really as important, particularly when you're up at flight level 220. You're not going to bump into much. Um, so, you know, you, you declare a pan or a mayday and you... Uh, just do what you need to, and everyone stays away from you. Um, the captain also did not disconnect the auto throttle as is required by the stall procedure, but he manually advanced the thrust levers um, due to concerns regarding an excessive increase in pitch resulting from a large power increase. He, uh, he didn't give the engines full power. So this is possibly a, um, a valid concern when you've got pods under the wings if you put a lot of power on it can tend to pitch the aircraft up but if you're uh, have already unloaded the aircraft and unstalled the wings you're usually pretty safe at that point to go full power um first officer observed the captain's actions and was satisfied but uh, six seconds later um, that still with the speed selected to this low speed of 223, um, the captain uh, pulled back to level the aircraft and uh, prevent further descent. But the same thing happened again. Now, the stick shaker activated. So in response, the captain had to push forward a second time because he still, I don't think, had realized that his speed was so low for what he was asking the aircraft to do at that height that it uh, really um, was so close to the stall that he should have increased the aircraft's speed. Now, just as a matter of interest, the um, maximum holding speed up to 14,000 feet is 230 knots. So that's the kind of speed regime he was in. Up to 20,000 feet is 240 knots, but up to 34,000 feet, above 20,000 feet, you can go all the way up to 265 knots uh, when you're in the holding pattern. So he could easily have just increased speed by some 40 knots, which would have put him in a much safer environment. Um, and I think this is the main problem. He had it in his mind that this was the speed he needed to be at to hold and really didn't pay any attention to the fact that he was well above his normal holding altitude and therefore the speed was uh, inappropriate. So there was a sequence of stick shakers. Captain responded uh, by pushing forward. Uh, and during all this maneuvering and the bunting, etc., obviously people in the uh, cabin were being thrown around a bit, even though the 
uh, seatbelt sign was on, and it's supposed to be on for very long. And of course, that point of the descent, there's usually people who ignore it because they want to make that last visit to the toilet, etc. Um, eventually, they got the aircraft uh, sorted out uh, and uh, descended, and everything was fine. But uh, um, you know, during all these pilot-induced maneuvers, the CSM, the senior cabin manager who was standing in the aisle, she hit the cabin ceiling and then fell onto an armrest. Five other crew members also struck the ceiling. So the aircraft wasn't being manoeuvred around gently, but then when you're recovering it from a stall, that's actually going to be secondary. It's much more important to um, make sure the aircraft is safe. The passenger located in a lavatory stuck the struck the cabin ceiling and then landed back on the seat. Uh, I'm only hoping they weren't in too much of a mess. But all in all, it was a, a bit of a disaster, really, from the crew's um, point of view, because this really was a self-induced problem. What do you reckon, Jeff? I am so exasperated when I read this, because, you know, when you're in a big transport aircraft, I mean, even, you know, the aircraft that Dana and I fly, it's a big airplane. We have a lot of passengers and you should be aware of its performance limitations and always being very careful about not getting too slow. And then if the, if you have the uh, thing hooked up to the lateral navigation system and you have a holding pattern set up, you know, understanding, you know, looking at the winds and going, you know what? Uh, it's probably going to try to bank up a little bit more than I'm going to be comfortable with at this altitude, at this very low speed. I, I just, to me, it's just all the hairs on the back of my neck would be, you know, upright, and I would be very concerned about not getting too slow. I would add more speed to whatever the calculated speed was in the system, and uh, I would probably even maybe take out some of that bank just so that you don't get into a situation like this where you end up stall and this is a 747 400 this is a big airplane and when you're tr- and when you're up at altitude like this and at such slow airspeed this just should be something that's basic like you understand that this is going to be a dangerous situation that we're you know getting ourselves into let's give our give ourselves a little bit of safety margin so I don't know. I'm I'm really kind of in- incredulous regarding this. Like, how could you get yourself into this situation? And then when you did get a stick shaker, perform a stall recovery maneuver, roll wings level. I don't care where I am and what other airplanes are around me and where, you know, it's just like you got to keep your airplane from dropping out of the sky. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, so uh, a lack of knowledge because he didn't know the correct uh, maximum holding speed for the level he was going to be at. Perhaps he didn't even, I don't know, realize that the speeds change with altitude to give you that extra so. margin. I can't imagine that uh, he would not know that as a professional airline pilot. Uh, I don't know about you, but I, when I see that this, the speeds that are calculated by my vertical nav and LNAV, my RNAV system, I look at that and go, yeah, okay, maybe, but um, if I have to bank a little bit more than what I'm anticipating, that that's going to be pretty close to that margin above stall, and I don't like that. I'm going to add some extra speed, so I'm going to override the speed 
and keep it, you know, at a, a safer airspeed. Um, and I think that most of us out there would do the same. And this person yeah. didn't seem to quite grasp how he was putting that airplane into a very, very perilous situation. Well, he was relying on the uh, flight management computer to do his speed calculations because the report says had the crew recalculated the whole speed for flight level 220 using the flight management computer, it would have provided a target hold speed of 240 knots, which was uh, obviously much safer and yeah. further from the stall. Uh, in this case, the flight crew likely did not have an adequate understanding of how the flight management computer calculated the target hold speed. They also did not understand the use of best speed provided on the hold page in the FMC. Using best speed would have provided the crew with a hold speed for the actual aircraft weight, altitude, and configuration. So it sounds like they didn't really have a, a firm grasp of what the uh, aircraft systems are there to do and provide you with all that information. And they were just doing something that perhaps they'd done before, yeah. you know, not being perhaps used to holding and not really thinking very much about the fact that they were way higher than they normally might be. Yeah. I mean, wouldn't the system, I mean, I, I don't know the Boeing system at all, obviously, uh, you know, we, we on the mad dog use, um, you know, we have our, our numbers that we know that are in the box, uh, Jeff, you know, and, and I know about. Uh, however, uh, <laughs> we have also have a paper card in the in the flight deck, which gives you the altitudes and also the speeds associated with it. Uh, that way that, you know, it's almost like a book for dummies and speeds that uh, you should uh, abide by at certain altitudes. You know, is it... Uh, I forget what it says in there, Jeff, but uh, it's, you know, 6,000 and 6,000 to 14 and 14, you know, something like that. And then there's a, a section, of course, says uh, Buffett Limited because it's too high of an altitude. We can't hold, period. So, you know, we have that to, to refer to. Um, but, you know, just like you were, you were talking about, Jeff, the, the kind of the hairs in the back of my neck stand up when I start looking at these speeds. Uh, I generally don't like to even be below 250 in maneuvering um, unless I ha I'm configured, you know, start putting out the slats and flaps. As you know, you know, the slats, uh, usually that speed's pretty close to just below 250, usually 230s to 240 range. Uh, when we have to put the slats out, it's just to maneuver the aircraft. So, uh, you know, having a rough number in, in, in your head as to the number that you need to have to be able to move maneuver the aircraft at different altitudes it's just something that we do as professional pilots. Seeing these speeds, it you know, it's no wonder the airplane side to stall. It scares the scares the bejeebus out of me. Yep. Yeah. Uh you there, Jeff, still? Have have we lost you, Jeff? Uh he can hear for some reason not talking. I can see his video there. Yeah, we can see his video. Yeah. Uh, so, do you want us to move on to the next? Be happy to. Uh, he hasn't said nothing. Give us a thumbs up, Jeff. Hello. Hello, Jeff. Hello, Can Jeff. you see us? Uh-oh. Uh -oh. This could be not good. No, he can't see us. He looks he very can't. grumpy. He's become an amphibian? Amphibian? We can oh, they're referring to, to Nick. Okay. <laughs> He's referring to Nick. 
Uh, don't worry. Well, he just room. muted his mic. No, he unmuted his mic. Oh, hello. Well, he's currently got it hello? muted now. Oh, there you yeah, are. There yes. you are. Hi. There you go. I have no idea what happened there. Well, you had the little mute symbol up, but uh, apart from that, I wasn't hearing anything it- from you all. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. How very strange. <sighs> well, we Sorry, finished the discussion, and it we all did. went very well. So oh, good. Yes. I think we can yeah, call that was, one over. I heard. I, I, I saw you. All you going <laughs> talking. So I'm. Done. No, we, well, that's good. We, we're just we're just chewing gum. Well, I look forward to hearing it in uh, your individual. <laughs> it, it was wonderfully recordings. wonderfully stated. <laughs> this is going to be a mess. Hmm. As far as editing it. Oh, well. For some reason, your camera is really zoomed in now, too. Well, it's because it's using the FaceTime camera now. Ah, I see. Uh, let me try to go back to the Logitech camera. Hey, there it is. Now it's way out. Yes. And you can't, you can't hear all that weed whacker activity behind me? Mm, little tiny like vaguely, bit. Vaguely, if I try to listen really closely. <laughs> Yes! Thank you. Nope, so can't hear thing now. Ah, shoot. Something, That's just something a, a happened again. Now you're shit. muted. What the Jeff, you're muted. I know. Oh, okay. Oh, there it is. I can hear it. I can oh, hear yeah, it now, I yeah. It now. yeah. I, I never muted anything. I didn't touch a mute button. I don't know what's going on. Well, now your audio is not coming through your uh, microphone. <laughs> gremlins. Uh, what happened? So the... Okay. This is gone. Uh, okay. Well, it's not seeing the USB. Lovely. This is your, if you're watching live, this is your bathroom slash beverage break. Um, yeah, we're going to take a few minutes. Yeah. Do you hear all that? I can hear oh, all yeah, that all now. The, it's yeah. coming yeah, through it's your, now. now that it's coming through yeah, your it's computer Yeah, it's coming through my microphone? computer uh, speaker. It's very loud. Microphone. Through the microphone, it really was difficult to hear. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> enough, enough. It's, it sounds like somebody's trying to cut into your room. Uh, he's he's going to take his new cable. I think he's going to tell them off. <laughs> Thank you! <laughs> wow. <Love it. laughs> wow. That's crazy. Normally, I suggest that Jeff counts to 10, but I think we need at least uh, 20 or 20. I might give it 100. Oh. <laughs> Son of a gun. Okay. So, why is my iMic system not working? Come on. No. Uh, here we go. Hello. Yes, there we go. Ah. 
That's much better. All right, so I'm going to go back to there. Hello. You say something to me now. Hello, Hello Jeff. Jeff. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I love, I love this audio technology. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's good stuff. <sighs> All right. So I guess it was my fault because I actually tried to turn my camera back on because I had it off all this time. Well, that'll teach you. Yeah, I should have just left it. Okay. Well, it's, it's like, it oh, you wanted to now. reset everything. Yeah, apparently. That's what you were asking. That's what it was thinking I wanted. No, I did not want that. <sighs> okay. So have we, uh, you, you guys said that you basically tied it up in a bow, the... Uh, Mm-hmm. Quantus 740. Well, kind of, yeah. Yeah, I think yeah. we've finished. We've just run out of things to say. Well, that's good. Me too. <laughs> um, okay. <laughs> Let's move on to the last item in our news folder, which is woman looks possessed during in-flight meltdown over a Pepsi. Are you ready to hear this lady? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It kind of sounds like she's using Latin, like um, like in those movies, like uh, The Exorcist. The Exorcist. Yes. <laughs> exactly. It's kind of quiet on my end, but I'm, I think there might have been some choice words in there. Yeah, uh, well, they, they beeped out the really choice words. Yeah. Um, oh, I thought that was the woman making that strange No, she can beep. Uh, so, yeah, this lady. A nose flute or something. She was a Spanish woman. Who, uh, she began began screaming and taking shots from a flask. And in the video, you can see the she her taking out the flask from her uh, pocketbook and just basically drinking it straight. Apparently, she was upset because she wanted to have a mixer, and her mixer of choice was Pepsi. And apparently, on this flight, they were only offering what did they say? Uh, orange juice and coffee. Fruit juices. Yeah. Fruit, hey. A fruit juice works just fine as a mixer, too, don't you think? Yeah, yeah. I, that would be my choice. You can have a nice Irish coffee. Yeah. But apparently she wanted Pepsi, and uh, she was kind of upset that Pepsi wasn't an option. And uh, so I guess the uh, the police came on and took her off the airplane. But uh, anyway, I thought it was kind of amusing, entertaining to hear her just going off. and. To see that video, please refer to our show notes, and then you can you can see it yourself. I like the bit where the captain left the cockpit to speak with her and handed her a note banning her from the airline. <laughs> have you, yeah. have you got any of those authority. notes? Yeah, yeah I, I, I'd like a few of those notes, because there's a few <laughs> people I, <laughs> I would like to get rid of. I need a stack. What are you talking about? Yeah. <laughs> so was this when they were still on the ground? I guess they must be. Uh, they must have been in flight. When this all happened, I yeah, because know. she was arrested when yeah, they, they landed. Were. Okay, I think. Yeah. And ah, yeah, I can't imagine taking her with them. Um, you know, if there, if she was displaying this kind of behavior uh, on the ground. So yeah, she just basically lost it, and uh, she got her priorities out of whack. Apparently, she forgot to take her Ritalin. I maybe so. I don't know. Or something. I'm or whatever. Sure. Yeah. Or too much from the uh, flask. Yes. It was a TAP Air Portugal flight in Lisbon for a flight to Malaga. 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 Sp- Malaga. Thank you. <laughs> that's another. <laughs> that's another 
pronunciation of that city. <laughs> Probably the proper one. <laughs> Thank you, Steph. <laughs> what did you say again? Malaga. 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 There we go. All right. With that, <laughs> oh, I just feel like just turning everything off and just going to bed. <laughs> <laughs> but if That's we must, right. we should probably continue with feedback. What do you think? It sounds good to me. As long as you're going to make it, Jeff. As long as you're going to make it. I don't know. I think it's time for me to have more beer. That's probably not a good idea. Maybe I'll just stay Beer, 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 okay. beer. Captain, incoming message. All right. Let's start with this first item from Thomas. It's an audio feedback. And he said, I wanted to drop you all a quick line regarding a question I had after listening to your latest episode. I'm not sure it was the latest episode, but uh, thanks as always for the great show and for managing to have come up with new questions or have me come up with new questions and challenging my assumptions on operations and standard operating procedures. So here we go. This is from Thomas Merriman, and he sent us the audio. Hey, APG crew, this is Thomas. Wanted to get with y'all for a quick piece of feedback regarding the latest episode, at least currently latest episode, which would be 366, and specifically regarding a piece of news that you covered over the Air Transat 737-800 that had an aft cargo fire indication and had an emergency divert to Newark for a landing. And um, just kind of brought a couple of questions to my mind, really questions that should have come up in my last feedback, which I don't know if you happen to recall, but was some time ago regarding the decision by a captain, how you make the decision to go about evacuating your aircraft and what that looks like as far as um, carrying out that process. And these questions are a little bit more specific, but my background being in public safety, this is kind of where my mind goes uh, initially when I hear stories like this. And a lot of the times I realize that things do coalesce between aviation and uh, standard fire suppression. However, this is one case where I'm not positive. In fact, I'm pretty sure that it's not the case. And I wanted to get a more definite answer from you if possible. And uh, what this stems from is the discussion that you all had regarding the fact that, uh, as Captain Nick pointed out, rather than, or at least in in companionship to checking the aircraft with FLIR or forward-looking infrared um, or a TIC, a thermal imaging camera is what we call them, they also made the decision, the firefighters on the ground made the decision to go ahead and pop the access to the rear cargo door with people still on the aircraft, which, as you pointed out quite rightly, can add a sudden oxygen supply to what could be a still smoldering fire, depending on the fuel source and how effective the halon deployment was. And you could absolutely have a, um, essentially a re a very fast reignition, um, kind of flashover type event. And, um, at that point you would have a much more, uh, evacuation worthy event, but could totally have been avoided. So what this brings up in my mind is how much control you as a captain of an aircraft have over the airport firefighters. And, um, Obviously, this is going to differ, I believe, based on where you are in the world, um, and it could even differ based on the firefighting agency that you have, whether they are a local fire department that staffs a station at the airport, they could be an airport-specific fire department, they could be part of the Port Authority, especially, I believe, is the case in uh, Newark, and uh, as you'll find at New York as well, the uh, New York, New Jersey Port Authority runs their firefighting there. 
Now, the interesting thing here is that if you were to have a fire in a residential commercial dwelling, just a standard structure fire, when the fire department arrives, they essentially take ownership of your of your house, of your domicile or whatever location is on fire until they deem it safe and turn it back over to you. And what that means is they basically can force you off of your property um, to remove you, to remove uh, occupants, even, you know, in case, unfortunately, it's had to be the case in the past by force um, to do so, you know, in order to carry out their job. And they essentially, they take the highest level of ownership over the property as long as there is a fire emergency. And I don't believe that that would be the case with an aircraft. I believe that you as a captain, I assume, would really still have the final say in everything as far as evacuation, obviously, you would. And um, I kind of wanted to understand how exactly or how much control you have or how you would go about trying to make sure that you maintained that kind of hierarchy of command with the air rescue firefighting guys because obviously you both want the same positive outcome but there may be some miscommunication or some misunderstanding over approaching the aircraft um, their priority in checking the area where fire was indicated versus your priority in making sure that everyone gets off the aircraft and like Nick pointed out could obviously be a controlled evacuation doesn't necessarily need to be uh, you know blown slides and things like that and evacuating the aircraft in what is going to be an almost inevitable injury scenario. So when it comes down to an aircraft, whether it's a fire indication or something else, but typically a fire indication, do you get to make that call about, obviously you do have to shut down the engines and give them permission to approach if I'm not mistaken. But um, when they go to actually access the aircraft, once you've shut down the engines and presumably have told them that it's safe to approach the aircraft, do you expect them to inform you before they start opening hatches, before you um, expect them to start accessing parts of the aircraft, actually entering the aircraft, um, things like that. Because obviously they are your eyes and you have to rely on what they're saying to you. And unfortunately, a lot of the times, because what we do is so rare, you're not going to come in contact with Halon. They wouldn't necessarily recognize it as just the Halon deployment. Um, and who knows if that had actually been accurately communicated as communication getting passed from uh, PIC all the way down to uh, fire command is a kind of hit or miss thing as we've seen in some incidents in the past. Not all the information tracks all the way downhill. So when it comes down to it, bottom line, do you get to have that much say in who actually enters your aircraft, how they enter the aircraft, or is it basically once you shut down your engines and tell fire command that it's safe to approach, is it pretty much, you know, uh, carte blanche as far as what they're going to do, um, you know, from uh, entering the aircraft to maybe if they're going to cool the brakes or whatever the case might be, depending on the emergency, do you need to request that? Do they need to uh, seek further permission from you? Or is it basically they own the situation, very similar to how it is in civilian firefighting? So whatever the case is, uh, I would appreciate some feedback, some insight, and just see how it compares to the side of public safety that I'm familiar with. So as always, I appreciate the show and thanks for listening to the feedback. Well, I have some, uh, an answer for you. I don't know. No. Um, Nick, I'm sure you have some thoughts well, actually, regarding that. I don't know either. Okay. It's a very interesting question, isn't it? Because I would assume, uh, in most circumstances I have, uh, the, when the aircraft is under my control, 
and I have absolute authority on board. But that authority has a definite start and finish point. And from us, it's more or less when the doors close or we start moving the aircraft to when we finish. Now, there is obviously a, a point when you parked up and uh, you open the doors and you're no longer really in control. And uh, the same might apply if you stopped on the runway, shut the engines down with a possible fire, um, and you're no longer moving down or in the empire, are you, is your authority now still absolute? I, I don't really think the legal definition matters too much. Um, I, I think a good captain and a good fire chief will communicate and talk to each other and come up with the best solution to what the problem is. In other words, if the fire chief wants to have a look inside the cargo hold and I said, whoa, no, hang on, whoops, if you're going to do that, I want to get all the passengers off first, I would expect my knowledge there to be overriding and he wouldn't uh, try and do something like that. But on the other hand, if he's got a really good suggestion saying, you've got a break fire, but I can keep it under control. There's no point risking your passengers and getting them out of the aircraft. Um, uh, this is all going to be fine. Then I would uh, probably bow to his knowledge on that point and uh, let him deal with the situation outside as long as he kept me involved. So I think it's a, uh, it's a matter of cooperation. Uh, it's a matter of CRM, really. Uh, and you you do make a decision between you. But ultimately, I feel it's still passages, still my responsibility, not his. That's the assumption I've always made. I'm still in command of the situation. Uh, uh, and you're, you're relying upon their perspective outside and what they're seeing and their advice. Uh, regarding what they think that you should do as the commander of the situation. That's my assumption. Um, but uh, Dana, what do you think? You know, that's, that's it, Nick. I mean, you, you hit it right on, on the head is, is communication. I mean, you've got to establish communication with them out there because they really are your eyes and ears and they are the experts on fire. And they, and they, they that's what they train. They train uh, insistently on uh, consistent, not insistently, consistently uh, using, um, uh, and I've had the opportunity, actually, believe it or not, to witness uh, the training over there in Atlanta uh, way back in my younger days. Uh, we, we actually uh, were trained uh, or saw what their training was like. So uh, they are very well trained on how to handle aircraft incidents and what to look for and how to handle uh, certain circumstances. So that's what they get paid their, their money for. We get paid uh, to make those types of decisions. And, and the biggest thing is uh, one of the things that we have to worry about is, you know, is the aircraft really on fire? Is it really uh, an immediate type of a, a threat to the safety of the aircraft? So should we really consider, uh, you know, uh, rapidly think about uh, evacuating the aircraft if we have a, a serious situation? And that comes from various sources. You know, flight attendant could call up and say, well, the floor is very hot and it's very smoky back here. Nobody can see. At that point, you know, the decision would be made. Uh, based on what's happening in the cabin versus what they're seeing outside the aircraft. So there are a lot of things that we as, as captains have to consider, but uh, certainly the um, Atlanta Fire, was it ARF, Atlanta Fire Rescue, um, they are the uh, eyes and ears and the people that help us to make that decision, and, and we're ultimately responsible for the passenger safety. That's the way I view it until uh, they're off the aircraft. 
What I would say is that I think that one of the greatest threats in this whole thing is communication and trying to figure out how to communicate with the people that you need to communicate with. And I, I don't know about you, but every time we have an, a situation on the ground and there's like a, a fire situation or potential fire situation, uh, a situation with um, situation, situation, situation uh, with uh, like fire and the cargo hold and that kind of thing. Uh, did you notice that uh, many, many times the pilots are going, well, we'd like to talk to the fire chief, but what, what frequency is the fire chief on? I think that there needs to be better standardization, uh, throughout the, the whole world, as far as what we can expect as pilots, uh, where we're going to be, you know, what frequency is the, uh, the ARFF going to be, you know, what frequency are they, they going to be on? Uh, so that we can talk to them. Uh, have you noticed that that that's always seem it always seems to be an issue in these situations? Like, okay, where are they? What frequency are they on? I need to talk to them and communicate. And there always seems to be some confusion regarding that. Yeah, yeah. In the UK, uh, my two major airfields, it's always the same, and it's one click above one two one five, so it's one two one six. And that's uh, that's fairly common, I believe, in the UK. I don't know if this is the same in the States, but no. Uh, no. that's the frequency that, that, that yeah. our guys use. So uh, it would be nice if someone went, let's allocate this frequency. So wherever we, you're right, Jeff, wherever you are in the world, you know where to go to speak to them. Uh, but trouble is, a lot of the countries that I go to, they wouldn't speak English, perhaps. Yeah. Whereas controllers have to speak English, the fire crews right. probably wouldn't. Yeah, interesting. I was just, you just had me thinking I was um, trying to go back. We had um, uh, the flight I was on returning from uh, the UK on Sunday. Um, small hydraulic or potential hydraulic issue, they thought, on um, final approach. So we got met on the runway by ARFF so they could do some inspections. And uh, it turned out to be nothing. Um, but I did try to go back to find the ATC audio of it. But, it, you know, when you listen to it, they're talking to them sometimes on tower frequency, but clearly sometimes not. Um, oh. I like that. Ouch! <laughs> <laughs> Nothing to hear here. <laughs> Thank you. My eardrums are This is are going bleeding. well. We're having a great time. I'm sorry, did anybody say anything? Because I can't say anything now. <laughs> there was nothing that I did here with the speaker. Nothing to do with that at all. No, so, like, I, I was trying to turn the speaker on earlier, and nothing was happening. <laughs> and so, I'm going to try to. <laughs> Your timing was impeccable. Great. Okay, go back to where you were saying something before yeah, that. I don't know. I, was just saying, I, was just saying, I love it. <laughs> you know, I was just I, me being curious. I wanted to go back and, and listen to the whole exchange on, as, or as much of it as I could find on live ATC. And um, it's funny where you hear bits and bobs of what the. Uh, fire services saying um, or, or what they're being directed to do, um, but not not all the time. So, you know, there's other information going on on different channels or different frequencies. So, and not just yeah. the, you know, live ATC doesn't pick up on all of the communications. There were clearly times where there were other things going on. So, Yeah, live ATC is only going to pick up on the... On the <laughs> <laughs> Stop! That was not me. That's fun now. Yeah. Yeah, no, but no, just my no, point no, being no. that they weren't on on uh, you know the tower frequency. Well, live ATC is only going to pick up on you know the tower frequency, whereas the uh, you know the the uh, local frequency that they're using to communicate isn't necessarily going to be 
Right, right, right. I understand that. I understand well, that. no, it, it really depends on the airport. It depends. Uh, yeah, it, yeah, it depends on what they would be using sometimes to. has all of the frequencies that are mm-hmm. uh, at that airport. Some yeah. airports, they only have uh, tower and ground control, sometimes combined. It really right. depends. It, it's a, you know, I've heard many instances where they've had all those other uh, discrete frequencies covered as well on on live ATC. So, mm-hmm. and some some of the airfields you go to, Jeff, um, would they even necessarily have their own dedicated airfield fire service, or would they use a local fire service uh, that would come onto the airfield if you? Had no, a they're all um, all the air- airports that we operate into have dedicated um, airport rescue fire services for that airport. Okay, okay. Even the smaller ones. Uh, I was just curious. That's yeah, like right. one of those requirements for our uh, uh, 121 carriers. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Ah, all right. Well, thank you. Do I need, do I need to protect my ears anymore? Here? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> so, just. yeah, I'm just not sure why the thing is not putting out the audio for from oh, you it's putting and out everything else. No, it's putting out my audio, which I don't need to know. I don't need to hear that. It's uh anyway, I'll I'll figure it out later in post. Okay. Sorry about that. That was not something I was expecting to happen. All right. I would love for one of you to take the next William, I'll item. take it. Okay. The solving the nightmare of coup scheduling. Oh boy, did I pick the wrong one? I'm only kidding. Uh, last summer, a technical problem with a coup scheduling and tracking system for one of the American Airlines Group subsidiary, Dayton, Ohio, headquartered PSA Airlines, led to more than 2,000 canceled flights. And to sum- summarize uh, the nightmares of crew scheduling, it takes a lot of manual labor, manual uh, input, because there's really not very good programs out there that can kind of think on its feet uh, like human beings can in order to fill the holes that are, are, are out there. So it takes a lot of, uh, a lot of individual effort uh, in each airline for the individual departments uh, the crew scheduling department to cover flights. Uh, let's say there's a, a mechanical issue and or weather event or uh, um, a uh, delayed crew uh, crew uh, coming into into a hub. Um, all those factors uh, need to be addressed by crew schedulers. And you know, one of the biggest things is is that the delays are kind of hidden um, in the uh, the the um, government data because there's really no specific way to look at that and, and what those delays or how they're, they're, they're affecting the airline. So let's say uh, somebody like Acme um, versus a uh, another airline here, you know, domestically, let's say American or, uh, or uh, well, Southwest or anybody else, they all have their own ways of of, of handling it, but the, the bottom line is it takes a lot of manual labor. It takes a lot of phone calls because uh, there's really, you know, we, we, we're in the infancy, infancy uh, with our scheduling system to be, to be uh, uh, processing uh, crew changes uh, electronically um, and notification electronically. So it really, at this point, still takes a lot of manual labor to reach out, touch somebody, and have that person call back. So 
Um, that's the general gist of how scheduling uh, works and how manually involved it is. It's even in this day and age when, when there are all these computers and so forth, it's still uh, quite labor intensive. Although, as the uh, article points out, that uh, there are some tools out there that are showing up that uh, help, you know, automated tools, uh, one of which is Arcos. Uh, which it talks about in the article, and it's an automated system that helps crew schedulers assign trips in irregular operations. And Acme is one of those airlines that has been using it now for I'm not sure how long, at least six months. And uh, it it seems to help out in these situations because they're talking about it in the article where you have a, a trip that you need to cover. They call. And it takes a while for somebody to answer the phone or maybe you leave a message and then you give them 10 minutes to call you back. And then finally you find out that the person is not available to cover the flight and then they have to move on to the next person. And you can see that it's going to take forever using that kind of a system uh, to cover flights that need to be covered in these irregular operations. And this Arco system is able to go out and you know, try to contact many, many uh, pilot crew members or flight attendants at once. And uh, it's a it's a much better system now that they can use to, you know, try to cover some of these irregular operations. Well, and, and that's what I was mentioning. It's in, in, in its infancy. So we just started using yeah. that very recently. And right. if you compare us with other people, certainly, uh, or other airlines that I know of, um, they, they are not using that as, you know, some of them are not using it. I have a very close friend of mine that I've known for a lot of years that works up there in crew scheduling at Acme. And even to this day, it's a lot of, uh, writing down, manually dialing, um, in our coast is come, coming uh, along uh, right now. They're just using that for the green slip. I believe, are they not just for green? Yeah, slips? that's true. Yeah. I think yeah. they're kind of it's, testing it out on the, on the, um, overtime kind of flying situation just to kind of see how it's going to work out. And then I think their plan is to roll it out for um, like white slip coverage or regular pickup coverage and irregular operations. Yeah. And, and still, and still, I mean, even though Arcos can go out and reach uh, numerous people at the same time, it still is dependent upon those people reaching back in to acknowledge that notification and so it's uh, it's still not a perfect system, uh, in my opinion, but a whole lot better than sitting there and dialing, you know, five, six, twelve people on a crew, uh, you know, international crew, obviously large, much larger, you know, smaller crew like us, five or six. So that's a lot of phone calls you have to make, and it's time consuming trying to reach out so to people. I don't know what Arcos is. I'm assuming it's such a kind of messaging system. It's a system that they, that's kind of hard to describe, um, that we all have. We have apps on our EFBs and our cell phones, if we want to have it on our cell phone, that uh, basically gathers data for people that are available to cover trips and are willing to cover trips. And so what happens when we're in a situation where they're starting to award overtime flying, what we call it, Acme green slips. Um, and if I have a request in, a green slip request, uh, when a trip matches those preferences that I put in there, it'll sh I'll get an, a notification that Arcos, uh, this app will give me a notification that uh, there is a an award process going on. And then it gives you 10 minutes, it gives you a, an opportunity to look at 
the trips, the trip or trips that are available. And then you can rank order them in the order that you would prefer. And then of course, based on your, your, uh, seniority, you will be awarded the trip that you requested first or second or third or whatever. So okay. it's just a way for the, it's, it's to take a load off the schedulers where they had to do all of this manually. And now they can use an automated system to take care of this. And uh, I think it's really helping a lot with their, uh, you know, being able to cover some of these things in a, in a much more expeditious manner. Well, that certainly makes sense because the technology is there. I mean, we've got, we can message each other in, in an instant around mm -hmm. the world. And right. uh, the fact that the airlines are just getting started to find ways of using this, I find quite amazing because my airline is like yours used to be. It uh, It's all done by the phone. They've got to call you up. Yep. Well, in, in I think it's most, um, most businesses in general kind of lag behind on technology because there's a lot that goes implementing, goes into implementing um new software, new new computer hardware, things like that to make all of these systems work across a large network if it's a large company, especially. Well, you know, one of the things that you have to be very, very aware of is that if, in fact, all of a sudden these messages are going out all the time, well, now the company technically by the FARs are interrupting a potential crew member on rest. And there's, you know, was it one interruption or two interruptions, I think is the maximum? Before, you know, you've now interrupted their rest officially. So, you know, those are some of the things that, that, that they're trying to work out in initial growing pains with the ARCO system. It was sending out all the, you know, it's, it was 10 or 12, uh, 10 or 20 people sending out notification to in, in looking for one trip to be covered. So now at 3 o'clock in the morning, 20 pilots are getting woken up for one trip to be covered. So that mm -hmm. was the initial growing pains on that. And I think they've kind of uh, uh, have resolve that issue and so you, you know in right now you have to put in for that those for arcos to call you arcos never calls me you want to know arcos never calls me because i never put in for anything right so it's specifically green slip because i know i'm never going to get it anyways at my seniority but mm -hmm. so it, it's it's yeah it, it's it's coming it's going to be there but there's still a lot of manual work a lot of paper and a lot of just uh manual key you know if you look at the behind the scenes if you saw, if you actually saw and knew what the the computer system looked like, you remember those old Acme term sets? You know what I'm talking about? Where you type in all the uh, cryptic codes, JDQ, SA, FN, mm -hmm. you know all, all that stuff. Right. That's what they're still working with in crew scheduling. They're still working with that type of cryptic. You have to memorize all the codes. So until that technology comes forward, it's going to make it really hard to to really get Arcos up and running at a, at a good clip, I think. Yeah, the, so. the thing that also, they also have to be careful about is that if the Arco system does not award the trip to the, to the right person, then the person that was supposed to get the trip is going to grieve it, and then that's going to cost the company a lot of money. Not only are they paying somebody to fly the trip, they're paying them double pay, but then this other person over here, or maybe two or three other people who were supposed to get that trip that didn't get the trip, they're going to have to pay them as well. So it gets very, very expensive. So they, they have to kind of make sure that the system is working properly before they implement this in a, in a, in a wide way. Yeah. So it, it's basically crew scheduling uh, is still a work in progress, still a, a very highly manual process that requires uh, participation on the other end. And that's us, you know, as crew members out there, 
to uh, respond, but it's still a timely process. So yeah. that's that's really why it takes uh, so long. Or it's such a ma- monumental effort on such a, a big scale. We have a, a major interruption, i.e., a huge storm or come through, or, uh, or the computer meltdown, electrical. It's uh, trunk line gets cut to the Atlantic exactly. airport or something like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah it's something a big like that. So I, I don't know how they do it. Huge you know? mess. Um, like, you know, nine 11 was just an amazing, huge mess because they had all these, you know, airplanes and crews all over the place, all over the world. And they didn't know where everybody was. And it took them days to figure out where everybody was and how to get everybody home and get the whole operation restarted. It was a, I think that was the very beginning of somebody saying, Hey, you know what? We really need to take a look at doing something here to make this work better and keeping track of everybody better. And we had several instances since that point where they uh, didn't get it quite right, but they're getting much better at it now. Yep. It's, uh, it's definitely, it's definitely has taken a turn and, and uh, certainly technology going forward is going to continue to enhance and, and help to solve this issue. Yeah. Well, I don't know about you, but I think this would be a good time to get to the best part of the APG, which, of course, we all know that means plaintails time. So here we go. The old pilot's plaintails. Die Nachthexen. It was the spring of 1943 at the height of World War II. Two pilots of the Soviet Air Force were flying their fighters over a Soviet railway junction. Their patrol was routine until the pilots realized that they were over the target for a large formation of German bombers, 42 of them. Diving down into the formation, they attacked. Dodging and weaving around, they managed to bring two Nazi aircraft down before the wing of one fighter was blown off by defensive fire from the Germans. Bailing out, the pilot drifted down into a field whilst the Yak-1 spiralled into the ground. Workers in the field who had watched the skirmish ran over to help the pilot, offering a drink of vodka and they were surprised when the offer was refused. No brave fighting man would ever refuse a glass of vodka, surely. The pilot would later recall, nobody could understand why the brave lad who had taken on a Nazi squadron wouldn't drink vodka. The reason why the brave lad had refused the alcohol was that she wasn't a lad at all. This young lady pilot was Tamara Pamiatunk, a member of the Soviet Air Force's 586th Night Bomber Regiment, their most highly decorated female unit. Although the Soviet Armed Forces initially banned women from fighting, it was on the 8th of October 1941 that the Soviet Premier, Joseph Stalin, issued an order to deploy three women's Air Force units, primarily made up from female volunteers in their late teens and early twenties, into active duty. 
facing combat, facilitated and ushered in a reluctant acceptance of women in the military based more upon practicality and necessity and for equality. Every able-bodied Soviet was expected to fight to defend their motherland. The world witnessed how these loyal Soviet women served on the front lines and excelled in specialized duties that were formerly inaccessible. The famed all-female Soviet fighter pilot regiments exemplified this. Approximately 400,000 women fought for the Red Army on the front lines of the 800,000 who volunteered for service during World War II. Combat training, including instruction in mortars, light and heavy machine guns or automatic rifles, was given to a third of the women and another 300,000 served in the anti-aircraft units and performed all functions in the batteries, including firing the guns. Gender did not limit these women from serving their country and performing their loyal duty. The 586th Regiment that Tamara Pamiatank belonged to was a remarkable unit. It was one of three specialist aviation regiments founded by Marina Reskova at the start of the war after she managed to convince Stalin that all female units were not only possible but would produce good results. Twenty-five women who graduated from their Yak-1 training course on the 9th of December 1941 became the founder pilots. The unit was very successful, and they produced aces. Lydia Litviak was the first female fighter pilot to shoot down an enemy aircraft and the first of two fighter aces that the women's unit produced. Flying a Yak-1 on the 13th of September, she was protecting Stalingrad when she attacked a formation of Junkers Ju-88s, one of which she shot down. As the German aircraft spiralled down in flames, she spotted her unit commander, her ISA believer, in trouble with a BF-109 on her tail. She closed on the fighter and with a few well-aimed bursts shot that aircraft down as well. The BF-109 Gustav was piloted by a decorated pilot from the 4th Air Fleet, the 11th Victory Ace Staff Sergeant Owen Mayer of the 2nd Staffel of Jägerschwader 5-3. Mayer parachuted down from his aircraft and was captured by Soviet troops. He asked to see the Russian Ace who had shot him down, but when he was taken to Litviak, he thought he was being made the butt of a Soviet joke. It was not until she described to him each move of the fight in perfect detail that he knew he had been shot down by a woman pilot. She flew 66 combat missions and accounted for at least 10 enemy aircraft before being shot down herself. On August 1, 1943, Litviak did not come back to her base at Krasny Luch. It was her fourth sortie of the day, escorting a flight of Aleutian IL-2 ground attack aircraft. As the Soviets were returning to their base near Orel, a pair of BF-109 fighters dived on Litviak while she was attacking a large group of German bombers. 
Soviet pilot Ivan Borisenko recalled, Lily just didn't see the Messerschmitt 109s flying cover for the German bombers. A pair of them dived on her, and when she did see them, she turned to meet them. Then they all disappeared behind a cloud. Borisenko, involved in the dogfight, saw her the last time through a gap in the clouds, her Yak-1 pouring smoke and pursued by as many as eight BF-109s. Later, Borisenko descended to see if he could find her, but no parachute could be seen and there was no explosion, and she never returned from the mission. Litviak was 21 years old. Yatakarina Budanova was the other ace, with a score of six enemy aircraft and a number of shared kills. She served with Litviak and had kills on bombers such as the Ju-88, as well as fighters, the BF-109 and Focke-Wulf-190 and BF-110, but the day she died she took on an impossible task. She spotted three Messerschmitts going on the attack against a group of bombers. Katya attacked and diverted the enemy. A desperate fight developed in the air, but Katya managed to pick up an enemy aircraft in her sights and riddled him with bullets. This was the fifth kill she had achieved personally. Katia's fighter rapidly soared upwards and swooped back down on a second enemy aircraft. She stitched it with bullets, and the second enemy, streaming black smoke, escaped to the west. But Katia's red-starred fighter had been hit. Tongues of flame were already licking at the wings. She managed to put out the fire and force-landed in no man's land but by the time local farmers had come to pull her from the aircraft, she was already dead. As remarkable as these fighter pilots were, it was the night witches of the 558th Night Bomber Regiment, known later as the 46th Tarman Guard Night Bomber Aviation Regiment, who gained the reputation for striking fear into the hearts of the Nazi soldiers. The aircraft that these women flew was the Polikarpov PO-2, an uncomplicated biplane used mainly as a trainer and agricultural crop sprayer, but could truly be classed as a general-purpose machine. It was produced to replace the U-1 trainer, itself a copy of the Avro 504. It normally flew around at a mere 60 knots, but in a dive it could reach a distinctly unimpressive 82 knots. However, its low speed and high manoeuvrability could give it a distinct advantage since attacking fighters could easily be made to overshoot. With a crew of two, its armament was a single .30 machine gun mounted in the rear cockpit, but it could carry a useful load of 650 kilograms, it's about 110 pounds, bombs. It fulfilled a myriad of military roles such as liaison, medivac and as a supply aircraft, particularly to the Soviet partisans behind the front lines since it could operate from very tight spaces. However, its most famous role was as a night low-level bomber. Not only was it slow, it was vulnerable and its wood and canvas construction meant that it was easily set on fire. Despite this, some 30,000 were built, 
making it the most produced biplane in history. Its engine, a Shevetsov M11D five-cylinder radial, which produced a mere 125 horsepower, had a most unusual noise, which led to the Wehrmacht troops to nickname it the sewing machine, whilst the Finnish troops called it the nerve saw. Apparently, during its low-altitude night bombing missions, it was a nerve-wracking noise to hear. For these night missions, a common tactic was for it to be throttled back and with the wind whistling eerily through the wire braces, it would sound like an unearthly harbinger of doom. Although the material effects of these night bombing runs would often be limited, the psychological effect was noticeable as the surprise attacks kept troops awake at night and continually on their guard in case of another whispering attack. German soldiers likened the sound to broomsticks, and it was they who named the pilots night witches. Due to the weight of the bombs and the low altitude of the flight, the pilots carried no parachutes. Instead, they took more bombs. One pilot explained... If we are shot down over enemy territory, then it's better to die than fall into the hands of the fascists. Although the aircraft were obsolete and slow, the pilots made daring use of their exceptional manoeuvrability. They had the advantage of having a maximum speed that was lower than the stalling speed of both the Messerschmitt BF-109 and the Focke-Wulf 190. As a result, the German pilots found them very difficult to shoot down. So successful was their tactics that the Luftwaffe took the idea and set up their own harassment combat squadrons on the Eastern Front using obsolete 1930-era open cockpit biplanes such as the Gotha G0145. The Night Witch's usual tactic involved flying only a few metres above the ground climbing for the final approach, throttling back the engine and making a gliding bombing run, leaving the targeted troops with only the eerie noise of the wings bracing wires as an indication of the impending attack. So loathed were they that any German pilot who downed a witch was automatically awarded an Iron Cross. The Soviet pilots' skills were even more remarkable, considering the limited technology the women had at their disposal. The witches, they took the German epitaph as a badge of honour, flew only in the dark. They had no radar to navigate their paths through the night skies, only maps and compasses. If hit by tracer bullets, their craft would ignite like the paper planes they resembled, which was no small concern. Almost every time, one recalled, we had to sail through a wall of enemy fire. Their missions were dangerous and incredibly tiring. Each night, in general, 40 planes, each crewed by two women, a pilot and a navigator, would fly eight or more missions, with some pilots amassing up to 18 in a single night. These were night maximum, when we were in the air for eight or nine hours in a row, one girl described. After three or four flights, the eyes closed by themselves, 
While the navigator went to the KP to report on the flight, the female pilot slept in the cockpit for a few minutes. While the armourers hung bombs and the mechanics filled the plane with gasoline and oil, the navigator would return and the female pilot woke up. It was a tremendous strain of physical and mental strength. And when dawn came, we could barely move our legs or go to the dining room, hoping to have breakfast and sleep as soon as possible. At breakfast, we were given some wine, which was supposed to help the pilot sleep after the combat work. But still, the dreams were disturbing. We dreamed of searchlights and anti-aircraft guns. Some had persistent insomnia. The women's uniforms were hand-me-downs from male pilots, and their planes had open cockpits, leaving the women's faces to freeze in the chilly night air. When the wind was strong, it would toss the plane, they said. In winter, when you'd look out to see your target better, you got frostbite. Our feet froze in our boots, but we carried on flying. Another pilot described her task thus. Bombing from an aircraft is difficult, and bombardment with a PO2 is doubly difficult. We must be able to accurately pave the way to the goal to find it without reference points, without illuminating lights often cleverly disguised. And here comes to the fore the skill of the navigator. You can, of course, illuminate the target with sabs, but that will catch fire at a distance of three or four hundred metres from the ground and will hang on parachutes for a long time, but with heavy clouds, thick haze, smoke screens set by the enemy to hide the object, sabs are useless. It takes experience to discover the target and hit it. We had to drop bombs of different weight and size, 25, 50, 100 kilogram fragmentation, high explosive, thermite, self-igniting liquid, and the small bombs, including anti-tank grenades, which we took in the cabin itself. But their missions were having an effect. In Hitler's Luftwaffe, the possibility of the PO2 were scornfully evaluated. In the first year of the war, the Germans laughed, calling it a miracle of technology and jesting that it was Russian plywood. But as soon as the female regiments began to act at the front, the term Russian Mosquito Aviation began to appear in the enemy's headquarters documents. Captured soldiers of the Wehrmacht revealed, There is no life from the PO2 plane. The stoves and fires cannot be fired. The PO2 plane sees them and throws bombs there. It finds us everywhere. We have to sit in trenches all night so as not to have group losses. In other situations, Russian plywood was completely indispensable. In the Caucasus, when German tanks crawled into the gorges at night, attack aircraft could not reach them. The Night Witches aircraft, equipped with captured incendiary bombs, they could do it. They first attacked the head tank of the column, then the closing one, then all the others. The Night Witches flew over 23,000 sorties, dropping over 3,000 tons of bombs and many thousand incendiary shells during the war, 
and became one of the most highly decorated female units of the Soviet Air Force. Many pilots flew over 800 missions and by the end of the war, 23 pilots had been awarded the Hero of the Soviet Union, the highest honor of the Soviet Union. One general, male, initially complained about being sent a bunch of girlies instead of soldiers. But the women, in their flimsy little crop dusters and their ill-fitting uniforms, soon proved him wrong. And they did all that whilst decorating their planes with flowers and using their wax navigation pencils as lipstick. Which is a really good look, if you ask me. <laughs> I mean, that's what I use my wax pencils for. Oh, wait. No, I don't. Well, no. I, I wish I could have filled more in because they used to use the little um, mortar parachutes uh, on some of their bombs. They used to make those into bras. I mean, they were <laughs> they were they were pretty um, badly uh, equipped, quite honestly. Yeah. Not only was their I aircraft mean, pretty useless. Uh, they were wearing uh, whatever was cast off from uh, uh, the male um, members of the Air Force. So, right. yeah, they had to really well, prove themselves. Well, but they themselves. were very successful in their missions, nonetheless. I mean, it, I was, um, I know we had been talking about this a little bit before, um, but gosh, they didn't really, I forget how many there were, 200 and something of them in total, and they only lost 23? Yeah. For those yeah. fairly dangerous missions oh, that they were those, flying, uh, yeah, they were those flying? night missions were were really dangerous. Not only was the actual flying very dangerous, of course, mm -hmm. they were in an aircraft that was incredibly vulnerable. It had no armor whatsoever, and it really was a sort of World War One vintage uh, biplane. So uh, I, don't, I don't know if you said I don't think they had parachutes until like the yeah. last year of the. That's right. The they they decided that they were too low, uh, flying mm -hmm. too low to even bother trying to parachute out. And anyway, they wanted to carry the same weight of parachute in, in bombs because they wanted to inflict as much damage. And they did all sorts of jobs. They, uh, you know, they kept their own frontline troops and troops who were cut off, um, supplied with, uh, you know, food. Uh, and uh, so they, they did a myriad of jobs, not just uh, this, these night bombing missions. And those that went on to fly the, uh, the Act fighters, uh, they did a grand job as well. They uh, you know, proved themselves just as capable as the men as uh, doing those or jobs. Or so. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, right. they seemed to be incredibly determined to get their jobs done. And they were so young, the average age was 19. Wow. So, uh, yeah, oh, wow. absolutely. Yeah. Wow. Fascinating stuff. Yeah, I know. It's, we don't hear much about it across mm. our side of the uh, the world, because, mm. uh, but in in, uh, in Russia, of course, they're much celebrated. And I think one of the, the last members of the Night Witches uh, passed away only a couple of years ago. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Very cool. No, I, lo I love that story. That's, that's great. Yeah. Thanks for doing that, Nick. Well, uh, it was uh, thanks to that lovely lady who um, left her um, feedback last show mm -hmm. who suggested it. And I'm desperately trying to remember her name because I didn't write it down. But I, it is in the, uh, in the, at the end of that show. I, I attribute it to, oh, yeah. uh, to her. Was it um, 
like a Wendy or I know what you're talking yeah. about. I don't remember her name either. Um, but she was talking about the, um, the whole Southwest, uh, thing and the importance of, uh, role models that are people like you. Right. Wasn't that? That's the right. Yeah. Uh, Heather, 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 Heather Allen. Thank you. That's it. Awesome. Well, thank you uh, for suggesting that as a plain tale subject, Heather. That worked out well, I think. Yeah, and I and I got some uh, information from one of our Russian listeners as well, who oh. uh, helped helped me out with some uh, links and information. So that was most useful too. Excellent. All right, let's move on. Try to knock out as many of these feedback items as possible. Uh, starting with uh, item six from George. Um, I think this is a Jordan Ollie, isn't it? Uh, I don't know, see. actually. Usually he writes his whole yep. name in the George feedback. Nolly. Is yes. it? Okay. Hi, Jeff. For the 17-year-old who, who has not finished high school, I totally agree with you that she should concentrate on her education as a priority. There's a lot she can accomplish in the next year. Uh, the GED, she needs to get that right away. She can get some college credit by taking exams online. And then George gave us a couple of links. Uh, URLs. And uh, without a great academic foundation, there is little likelihood for success at the Air Force Academy, even if she gets in through some lucky, um, lucky great for her congressman. Lucky, I'm sure that was right. Uh, through some uh, maybe yeah, a grant or something. Uh, but the academy has probably, a prep yeah. school for prospective candidates who need additional foundational education. An Air Force recruiter can fill her in on the requirements, such as enlisting first. Regarding code share safety records, back when code sharing first started, most airlines would conduct safety audits of their code share partners. United would audit Lufthansa, then Lufthansa would audit United, then United would audit Al Nippon, then Al Nippon would audit. United, and so on ad nauseum. Every airline audit department was either auditing another airline or receiving an audit. Finally, a consolidated audit system evolved, managed by the International Air Transport Association, IATA. It's called the IATA Operational Safety Audit, IOSA. Every IATA member that is on the IATA IOSA registry gets audited by a certified IOSA. IOSA audit organization every two years. If they don't pass or correct deficiencies before their registration expiration, they are removed from the registry and can no longer participate in code share agreements. An IOSA is a big deal for airlines. I led an IOS audit, IOSA audit team for a couple of years, and typically we would brief the airline CEO and all the other big shots on a daily basis during the five-day audit conducted by the team of five auditors who would look at every aspect of the airline. More information about IOSAs, <laughs> IOSAs are here, and then he gave us a link, which we'll have in the show notes, to see if the airline you're going to fly on is on the IOSA registry. You can search for their name at this link that we'll have in the show notes. I wouldn't even think of flying on an airline that isn't on the registry. Hope this helps, George. Again, George Nolly from the Ready for Takeoff podcast. Another great aviation podcast that I didn't mention at the beginning of the show. See, I told you there would be some that I completely forgot about. Um, many people in the chat room said, yeah, what, you know, Betty in the Sky with the suitcase and uh, Pilot to Pilot. 
and uh, others. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um, Joe, no, I'm sorry. Which one we're going to do next? Not eight. Eleven. Eleven, thanks. I didn't have that up. I asked Liz to kind of help um, prioritize some of these as we get close to the end of the show. Um, number 11, um, Mark writes, do any modern airliners, aside from the RJs who are, that have air stairs, uh, do any other modern airliners have air stairs? I, I guess what he's saying is like built-in air stairs. Like- yes, I believe he means like connected as part of the aircraft so that when you arrive somewhere, you don't have to rely on a stairs truck. Yes. I used to love boarding from the tarmac and watching them deploy the stairs from under the door on the classic DZ-9s and 737s. Um, I don't know. I think, I'm not even sure it's an option anymore. Do you know, Nick, if there are any, uh, like the Airbus 320, 319s, 318s, or 321s? Is that even an I option? I don't believe any of those have, have that option, but um, yeah, I, I, I might that be corrected, but I don't think so. Yeah. It's generally those uh, sort of uh, old fashioned things like seven twos and right. Whatever. Well, you know, we have on the seven twenty seven, and then also on the um, MD 88s and MD nineties that Acme flies uh, have air stair, the rear air stairs, but they also, when you're doing your, your walk around, you see this every time right below the, main entrance door the l1 door um the there's a there's a panel there and it's bolted closed and i believe that the the enunciation system for you know letting us know whether a a door or hatch or whatever is open or closed um is still active i could be wrong about that but um that the um because the dc9 had these as an option to have its own air stairs pop out below that forward entry door on the left side. Uh, the uh, MD-80, the Mad Dog series also had them. And somebody told me, I think that the the whole the whole stair mechanism is still in there. Uh, I'm not sure if that's correct or not. Oh, interesting. Um, that would, that, that that's a lot of weight yeah, to I was, was going right? to say, that doesn't really yeah. seem to make any sense that they would still have the actual stairs in there. But I guess the at least the door is there, uh, the, the panel. And uh, we always have to make sure that that's all shut and none of those bolts or screws are missing. No, you really have to go down to sort of uh, the lemon, uh, oh, sorry, the, the phenom, um, <laughs> and those kind of jets where, you know, you, you drop the door down and mm-hmm. it turns into a door. They're built into the uh, door. Into a yeah. set of stairs. Yeah, yeah, he mentioned the the regional jets, certainly the, the CRJs and then things like that yeah. have um, okay. the smaller Embraers, like the 145. Yeah. I, I tell you what, we've got a ladder. Does that help? I mean, you can climb down through the cockpit floor into the avionics and then go through the avionics hatch, and there's a, a retractable ladder that we can put down. Does that count? Well, that's kind of inc- inconvenient for the passengers, I think. Well, it is a bit difficult, yeah, I yeah. must admit. It's hard enough for us, but... Uh... <laughs> yeah, I don't... I mean, I guess it works. I, I wouldn't call them air stairs. Yeah. I'd no, call you, a ladder. you can't really put them out in the air, no. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay um let's move on uh 13 thomas sent us some audio feedback regarding amateur radio stuff i think this one's probably aimed at nick 
Hello APG crew, this is Thomas in Asheville, North Carolina, and uh, just thought I'd leave you a quick feedback uh, regarding one of the last episodes um, where Captain Nick had mentioned that in his retirement he may um, try to start an APG net or something like that um, via ham radio, and I'd just like to say I'm all for that. I'm a ham radio operator, uh, the call sign is K4SWL Sierra Whiskey Lima. And uh, Nick in the UK, I, I live there, um, and so was licensed there. My call sign there is M0 Charlie Yankee India, CYI. And uh, I'd love to participate in a net, either on HF or uh, via digital mode, whatever. It doesn't matter. It sounds like a lot of fun. And uh, I'd like to comment, maybe this is just for Nick, but he had kind of mentioned in passing that he was hoping his lovely wife would surprise him with a gift of an ICOM IC7300 uh, HF transceiver. And I hope she does that, Nick, because, wow, that's an amazing radio. I review radios. I uh, alpha and beta, beta test radios for various uh, radio manufacturers and write reviews uh, for magazines and that sort of thing. And uh, the 7300 is just a really sweet spot in the amateur radio market. It's a fantastic transceiver at a great price point, loaded with features, can do pretty much anything you want to do, so well played. And I've yet to listen to uh, Captain Nick's um, uh, crew log about HF communications. I've got that on my list. I'd like to listen to that. Um, and maybe he answers this question, but really the one thing that I, I think I, as much as I know about sort of radio communications, I know very little about aviation traffic because I'm not a pilot, uh, not yet. I plan to do that maybe within a decade or so, uh, try to get a private pilot license. But um, when I listen to the aviation bands, and I do listen to them quite a bit, it amazes me the amount of times people change frequencies. And I'm guessing that the first officer, whoever's not flying at the time, is the one that's doing all that. Do your aircraft, and I guess maybe this is my question, do your aircraft make it easy to make those changes? Uh, because it seems to me like it's a lot of frequency hopping around, but I guess you can pre-plan all of that. Sorry for all the ambient noise, by the way. I'm out walking my dog here near downtown Asheville, so um, here's some traffic and birds and things. Um, Anyway, yeah, I'm very curious about that. I'm, I'm assuming that probably on the Airbus systems that it's relatively automated. At least it, maybe it makes it easier on you. I'm guessing on the Mad Dog, it's like an analog tuning dial, maybe with tubes and things. Uh, and you have to wait for the set to warm up. Um, no. Jab. Anyway, um, if you could speak about that, that'd be fantastic. Again, this is Thomas in Asheville. Thank you very much for all you guys do. I love the podcast. Listen to it all the time. And uh, seven threes, everyone. Thank you. That was uh, Thomas Witherspoon, Kilo Four, Sierra Whiskey Lima, and uh, Mike Oscar Charlie Yankee India for the. I guess you have a different zero. I'm sorry, zero. Is that so? Do you have to have like a different identification if you're over in over across the pond? No, no, you can carry a call sign with you, but I guess. Thomas uh, was resident in the UK for a while and, and did a UK license, in which case he 
probably carries both. I'm not an expert in this. Uh, I, you know, I, I dabbled a bit uh, a few years ago, and I'm sort of rejoining uh, the community and getting the hang of it. So Thomas obviously knows a great deal more than I do, but uh, I suspect he did a UK license and did an American license, so he's got both call signs. Um, but uh, thanks very much indeed. I actually, uh, Thomas uh, has a very good blog, uh, and I uh, read his review and uh, listened to the audio he produced uh, concerning that set after I'd purchased it. Uh, and it's sitting here right beside me. It's a perfect desktop set, and uh, it's producing great results. I haven't got into the States yet, so um, that's one thing I have to try and do. I might have a go after we finish the show tonight. But, uh, yeah. Um, definitely uh, up for trying to uh, make contact with everyone. I think there's uh, at least three of us now uh, with Mimex 4. Any others out there? Let's uh, try and get a little list together and we'll try and have some time when we can try and all find each other, which would be uh, great fun. Regarding his question about how easy it is to dial up the frequencies on airplanes is he talking about uhf or v i mean vhf frequencies or is he talking about hf frequencies i, well, I, g- I guess both uh or, yeah i guess but, yeah yeah but i suspect i mean especially VH- if you're switching frequently that would be more vhf no? yeah, yeah that's what i was thinking as well mm-hmm. um, but it makes no difference to us uh, the system of doing it is identical whether we're using hf or VHF. How about you, Jeff? Do you have to wind the aerial out on that big wheel (laughs) and trail it behind the airplane? We have to depressurize. We have to open up the back hatch and yes, you know, put trail trail that big aerial out. And then that uh, the big giant is like a huge knob, like twelve inches in diameter. That um, you know, the guy kind of starts rotating and making all those you know crazy noises. Yeah. No, it's just Very all good. digital. It's like little knobs that we just turn and we can put in the actual, you know, the, the actual frequency uh, digitally. Works yeah, the same way we, on we, we, uh, too. Yeah. I don't know if yours works the same. We have uh, two windows. One's the active mm-hmm. frequency and one is a uh, one we can use to set up. We a have more than two windows. And, uh, <laughs> do you really? Yeah. Oh, yeah we wow. have one, really two, fancy. three, four, five, six, including the eyebrow windows. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Very oh, good. you're talking about different good vis- good visibility yeah. on the yeah, uh, very good visibility. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, on the radio. Oh, we have, the radio uh, head. LED okay. displays. Gotcha. Uh, Sorry, and uh, <laughs> yeah, we uh, as as the guy's giving us the new frequency, I'm already uh, dialing it in. The uh, one knob controls uh, the first three digits, the second knob, the uh, second three digits. So you wind them in, and then as soon as uh, you've acknowledged it, uh, you just press a button and the, uh, the the frequencies that are in those two windows flip so that uh, your standby frequency now becomes your live frequency and uh, vice versa. So you can always go back to what the frequency you're previously working just at the press of a button in case you got that's, it wrong and no one answers you or something. Yeah, that, that's there. helpful sometimes. Yeah, yeah, ours is not a button because we're old technology. It's actually like a little toggle that we oh, it's a switch. Yeah, like a little toggle switch that we uh, move back and forth. All right. Okay. 
but you know, but uh, a- HF is the same. The only annoying thing I find about our HF is it's sort of uh, they've tried to go for the way that uh, my set beside me and most, most uh, decent HF sets work. In other words, it's got a lovely big smooth tuning knob, and we always like big knobs. And um, they, uh, you know, you wind it around, the frequency changes very easy now. And the uh, and the Airbus, you're still using the um, the, the knob that is uh, what's the what's the term you use for it when it clicks? It, it clicks as you turn it. They've tried mm. to introduce the same thing in the HF bands, which are not so easy to tune uh, or set the numbers up. And if you twirl that knob quickly, it leaps up frequencies, and it's very easy to go straight past the frequency you wanted to set in there, and you've got to wind it back, and you have to be really quite careful at the speed at which you turn that, because it's it's a very clumsy uh, device uh, to get those frequencies set up. But the HF works exactly the same as the VHF. You just dial in the precise frequency and then push it across onto the active window, and, and there it is, ready to be used. And we have an ATU that uh, tunes in very quickly. And that ATU, uh, aerial tuning unit, uh, has a number of memorized frequencies. So normally the ATU um, tunes very quickly in two or three seconds. Uh, But if you've got one that's an an unusual frequency, hasn't been used and isn't in its its memory, then uh, it'll probably take 15 or 20 seconds. And all you hear on the headphones are this this loud tone whilst it uh, tries to grab the frequency and tune the antenna. But I think from our point of view, most of our aircraft radios aren't that powerful, but uh, I think the ground radio stations are both uh, the the west side uh, in Canada uh, at um, Gander and the east side uh, in Ireland at Shamwick, they probably have very powerful beams. Uh, and you can often tell when you're coming on frequency if they're going to point their beams more in your direction. Then, uh, you know, the, the uh, quality improves remarkably. He has a very powerful beam. Yes, we like that. I don't. I have just a, a little vertical. <laughs> well, I'm sorry Powerful to hear beams that. and large knobs. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. okay. Well, anyway, also we should mention that Thomas also is the. Uh, uh, he has a, a web site, uh, and well, I guess this is his blog site. S W L I N G. dot com, and uh, he is a, a, a quite an expert out there in this world of shortwave radio so yeah and right up the road for me in Asheville. yeah cool yeah very cool did we yeah, answer his nice question though nice well we did about the uh the, the frequency oh i have a question for nick um i noticed that um a lot of times the frequencies are giving uh given as like 127 dot or decimal two five two or two five five or whatever i don't know if that's really a real discrete frequency but we do you have all those digits after the decimal point because we only have two digits beyond the decimal point on the, the airplane that i fly uh we have had to move across to a, a smaller uh, frequency separation so it's uh, i think it's down to 0.8 of a kilohertz or something so we have to have three digits ah, okay and uh, for us it's quite confusing because all our boxes have been updated and uh, 
the UK controllers will usually give us the VHF uh, frequency down to three digits after the decimal, uh, after the point. And uh, in the States, they often don't. And uh, see, uh, they're getting better, but sometimes you don't know whether it's uh, – I'm taking off the top of my head uh, – one, three, two, decimal, four, five – zero or four five five um because they don't specify because they only give two digits so i would assume that but it that, would be a zero than the last decimal point right not always well, you, uh, sometimes not it's a always. five yeah exactly mm -hmm. oh, so you do weird. need to ask if they don't give that last digit you do need and and it's there on your set you do need to ask them because, oh, okay. uh, so for the set that i'm ones. using then it it doesn't really matter if i put it like 127.25 I'm I'm just going to put that in, but even if it's 127.255 or whatever, I guess the the radio just takes care of it on its own. Well, I'm assuming you've got an unmodified set. I don't know. No, I don't know uh, because you should be able to yeah, select they only between give you the two digits after the decimal. That's all you have to put in the. But I mean, that's all I have. <laughs> that's all I can. <laughs> right? Put no, in I it. know. It, you don't have to worry about whether it's a zero or a five because it doesn't make any difference for the first two two digits. Okay. Yeah, it'll on, be on the correct frequency. Okay. On that particular frequency you picked, yes, there's only one. Uh, but some frequencies have a a zero or a five after them. So, so in other words, you, we can't go flying that darn thing around in uh, Europe because then uh, we couldn't get some of the frequencies then. I'm surprised you can see fly around the stage. Ah, shut up. Yeah. All right. <laughs> yeah. Like we're, we're, frankly, we're just surprised that the thing flies. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Wow. I really threw up a big softball for you guys on that one. Sorry. Okay. Yeah, yeah. my fault. <laughs> okay. Well, that's really funny. You, you know, we love, we love the Mad Dogs. Uh, I know mad you dogs, do. Really? Okay. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Whatever. I don't care. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> uh, we're getting close to the end of the show. Thank goodness. <laughs> What a train wreck this has been. Um, yeah, well, we haven't covered ourselves in glory tonight. <laughs> no, yeah. we haven't. Sorry. <laughs> we apologize. If this is the first time you're listening to our show, really, we Live? usually do better. <laughs> yeah, it's not always like this. Yeah, it's sometimes terrible. it's worse. Yeah, that's true. Sometimes it is worse. <laughs> this was, this was, you know, average, not great. <laughs> okay, whatever you say. Uh, last item uh, we're going to do on today's show is from Nick C., Nick Camacho, and he sent us some audio feedback. So let's listen to what he has to say. Stand by, guys. Here we go. Making the right one. Hey, Captain Jeff and the rest of the APG crew. This is Nick from the Air Capital uh, and from Betsy's Biscuit Bomber, the C-47, heading over to Europe this summer. And I thought I'd uh, send in some more feedback uh, regarding our airplane and our trip. Uh, today, I figured I'd cover the history of our airplane and kind of uh, let you guys know how it came to be in, in our uh, care. Uh, and in the interest of full disclosure, I will say... I tried to make this recording covering the history and then the maintenance that we've been doing, and it was just too long. So to try to uh, 
make Jeff's job a little easier. I'm going to, I think I'm going to split those two things up into uh, separate feedbacks. So today we cover the history. Uh, our airplane is a Douglas C-47B, as in Bravo. Uh, it was uh, contracted in 1943. Our serial number is 43-48608. And the 43 at the beginning of that serial number uh, denotes the contract year. Now, the contract year is different than the year of the airplane because our airplane actually came off the line in April of 44. And uh, the airplane was delivered uh, in theater in September of 1944 to the 9th Air Force, 302nd Air Transport Wing, 27th Air Transport Group. Uh, little light bulbs might, got, might have gone off in some of, your, uh, some of y'all's heads as you were listening. If you uh, thought, wait a minute, that, that was after D-Day. It, uh, as a matter of fact, it was. Our airplane was off the production line prior to D-Day, but it actually didn't make it over into theater until September of 1944. So our airplane did not participate in D-Day. It is not a D-Day veteran. Uh, however, it is a war veteran, a military veteran. It served with uh, the Air Force from September of 44 uh, through the end of the war, uh, doing uh, a lot of logistics missions, uh, moving ammunition, fuel, and that sort of stuff. After the war in 1946, the airplane was loaned to the Belgian Air Force. In 1952, the airplane returned to the, returned to the United States Air Force. I say returned to the United States Air Force, uh, but it's a little bit weird there because the United States Army Air Corps loaned the airplane out. And now in 1952, the airplane is being returned to the uh, relatively newly established, uh, you know, four or five years ago, four or five years prior, United States Air Force. In 1953, they turned around and loaned the airplane out to the French Air Force. And then in 1967, the airplane was loaned out to the Israeli Air Force and maintained in a state called War Readiness. Now, my understanding of war readiness and, and the Israelis' use of it is that they would park these airplanes out in the desert and they would maintain the airplanes and the paperwork and records as though they were flying airplanes, always flying, but these airplanes never flew. So every year they'd pull the airplanes out and uh, do the annuals or, you know, in our case and probably in their case, I suspect, uh, phase inspections, which is a little bit different than, the, than an annual, and I might hit on that uh, next time around on maintenance. Uh, they'd run the engines, they'd do everything, and then they'd put the airplane back in storage for the rest of the year. Uh, and they did that basically so that if anything happened, um, they didn't have to spend a month or a week or even a day uh, getting that airplane ready to go to war. They could pull it out of storage and it would be ready to go. So. That's how it sat with the Israeli Air Force, and that has actually uh, uh, that state actually led to it having an incredibly low amount of airframe hours, which I'll get to here down towards the end. So Israelis for about 30 years, uh, 32, 33 years. In 1999, it was sold to Global Aircraft Industries, uh, who's a kind of an aircraft broker, aircraft trader, um, aircraft collector. And they flew the airplanes to Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, where they were stored in 2002. And I say airplanes because they bought either six or eight and uh, flew them all back there. Uh, so when our group went, to, went up to look at them, they actually had a whole bunch of C-47s lined up and we were able to go through and um, look and inspect all of them and pick the one that we liked the most. Uh, and I say we. I, I actually didn't get involved in the group until... 
the tail end of uh, 2009. So this is still all before my time. So 2002, airplanes stored in Canada. 2007, uh, November 47 Sierra Juliet. Uh, that's our airplane, is acquired by the Goonie Bird Group. That's our group. Uh, it's a 501c3 nonprofit corporation. Uh, it was basically stood up as a uh, organization that could uh, take ownership of this airplane, maintain it, and uh, operate it as a historical venture. Um, we acquired the airplane, flew it to Paso, spent about two and a half years, almost three years, um, restoring it, working on it. It actually came down to the States in a uh, very worn, faded, and tattered uh, Israeli Air Force paint scheme. So one of the big things that was done at our museum by our guys was they painted it into a authentic D-Day paint scheme, which, uh, as I mentioned previously, is actually not authentic for our airplane. Uh, but it did have uh, invasion stripes that went all the way around. Uh, it actually had a squadron code of U5, Uniform 5, up uh, up on the nose, uh, which was also not uh, accurate for our airplane. But it is uh, a pretty popular, uh, you do see it fairly often on, on C-47s. And I don't know if that's because of the documentation that exists. There are a fair amount of pictures of, of C-47s, wartime C-47s with that code, and on D-Day with that code. So uh, I, I don't know if that has led to the... Uh, propagation of that but i i know even uh captain jeff sent me a, a message um a few days ago or a week or two ago about a, a memorial that he walks by and it has a picture of a c-47 with the u5 flash code on it so if you guys ever see any pictures of our airplane with that th that's basically what's going on that was the first paint scheme we had uh it wasn't super authentic so when we got the airplane repainted in 2013 uh, we went to a more authentic paint scheme unfortunately well I have to be careful how I said this. Uh, this is the second time I've actually recorded this uh, for two reasons. Number one, uh, it got real long, so I cut the, the maintenance part out. But also, I went back through and listened, and I said, unfortunately, between uh, 2009 and 2013, I got married. That's not what I meant. Um, <laughs> what I meant to say was, wonderfully, gratefully, I got married in 2011, but unfortunately, my little groom's cake, you know, the little wedding cake I had, uh, was actually done up in the shape of a C-47, and it was painted like our airplane with the U-5 flash code and everything on it. So I actually have a number of uh, wedding pictures of me and my wife sitting next to my little uh, wedding cake painted in the incorrect <laughs> scheme of our airplane. Um, but not unfortunate. The wedding was not the unfortunate part of that. Uh, so then uh, we, So then that's basically how the airplane came to be with us. Uh, and then started flying it regularly in 2009, flew to Oshkosh in 2010, and uh, we've been flying it more or less consistently since then. It's been down a couple of times for some major maintenance, which I'll get into next time. But uh, that's that's how it came to be, uh, Betsy's Biscuit Bomber and, and flying around with the Goonie Bird group. So uh, until next time, uh, Jeff, thanks for the time. We'll talk to you guys again soon. All right. Thank you, uh, Nick, for the update on Betsy's Biscuit Bomber. And um, I'm going to put... He said, oh, real quick, yeah. he said he didn't actually mention it in the um, in the audio he recorded, but the the engine noise at the very beginning was the newly installed right-hand engine on the plane. So, brand new. Yeah, and I think he said he's going to talk about that in uh, the second part. Oh, did he say? Yeah. Okay. Yep. 
Um, I mean, he didn't specifically mention that, but um, he said in the in the writing, in the text that he forgot to mention that he's going to cover that on the later feedback. Um, I wonder but, uh, where you get a brand new engine for one of those things from. I mean, <laughs> they still make them, right? How much does that? Yeah, really? <laughs> no, sets you back just a little bit. Just yeah, I'm bit. not sure exactly what he means by brand new, but maybe most of everything on there is a new part. I don't know. Um, and he also mentioned, and we've mentioned this before as well on the show. Hillel got a channel set up for uh, him and the, their group on the APG Slack. Um, team. It's called C47 D-Day Epic. And he said, I've made a few comments there, but we'll be working to add more trip info and some little tidbits about our airplane and group. And he said, I've attached some pictures of the various iterations of our airplane's paint scheme here, and I'll also drop them in the Slack channel, so they'll be easy to find. Well, if you're listening to this show and you uh, go to the show notes and you click on the link, you will see the uh, the, the beautiful photos here of the actual airplane and uh, the cake that uh, is uh, meant to uh, portray the airplane. And, of course, Nick uh, Nick's beautiful wife, who apparently he uh, feels unfortunate to have married. No, I'm just kidding. He... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, yeah, I'm making really it worse. dropped a minute now. <laughs> Next time I see Nick, he'll say, yeah, thanks, Jeff. Uh, we're not married anymore. Yeah, did me a favor <laughs> <Appreciate that>. <laughs> Anyway, uh, good stuff. And, um, boy, I wish I was going to be able to be over in, uh, in Europe to, uh, you know, see some of that stuff that you're going to participate in. That looks like a lot of fun. Yeah. I love the photos. Yeah. That's great. Great photos. Great airplane. You know, the funny thing is I thought, um, when I sent him the photo of the, um, model in the uh, display case in the Atlanta airport, uh, that U5, I was thinking, is that supposed to be US? But it kind of looks like a five to me. Now I get it. Thank you for straighten, straightening that fact out in my mind, Nick. And so it is really U5, not US. Okay. That is it. Anything else to add before we shut this thing down? Uh, yes. Uh, the the two folk I were going to uh, thank for I've got their names now for uh, the tonight's pain tale, plain tale was uh, Heather Allen we've mentioned mm -hmm. and uh, Ev Evgeny uh, Avramenko Evgeny Avramenko so uh, one of our Russian listeners <laughs> and provided me with a lot of input there and places to go unfortunately some of the tra Google translation wasn't very easy to understand but uh, I got the hang of most of it but thank you very much uh, Evgeny. Excellent. So um, all of the pieces of feedback that we weren't able to get to on today's show will be moved to the next show folder and uh, we'll hopefully be able to cover that next time and if you want to send us feedback uh, you can do that by uh, sending it to feedback at airlinepilotguy.com uh, you can use the, well, the website's going to tell you to use that address as well because we haven't fixed that yet. But uh, if you um, have the app on your phone, uh, iOS and Android, uh, you can use the uh, feature to send us feedback there. We have SpeakPipe. We have all kinds of different ways to send us feedback in, in addition to our social media presence. Indeed, you can head over to twitter.com 
and using the handle at APG Crew. Interact with us there. We're all uh, there individually as well. That information is pinned to the top of the page. Or try facebook.com slash airline pilot guy. Lots of community members are there as well and sharing different news stories, aviation happenings, and meetup information. Excellent. And we also have that Slack team, uh, the APG Slack team, and Hillel is going to tell us about that. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share ideas and news. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K, Sierra, Lima, Alpha, Charlie, Kilo, at airlinepilotguy.com. Or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel, spelled H-I-1-1-E-1, Hotel India, one one Echo 1, and see you in Slack. Thank you very much, Hillel, and... Wishing everybody listening to the show, thank you, first of all, for downloading the show, listening to it, uh, spreading the word about our show, and uh, leaving reviews on iTunes and all that jazz. And also a big thanks to our producer, Liz, in Toronto. Thank you, Liz, Mm -hmm. for making life so much easier for me and the rest of us. And uh, until next time, wishing you clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Helen Douglas. Cheers, y'all. Bye, everybody. Good day.